Thanks for doing this, man. My I'm pleasure. Very excited. My pleasure, Mike. All right, here it's... we go. Joe Rogan Podcast. Check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day. Joe Rogan Podcast by night. All day. There's only been uh, two people ever that Dennis McKenna has rec- recommended for this podcast. You and Josh Wickerham. So that puts you in very lofty company. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dahmer, that's the way? Damer. D- Damer. 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 Bruce or Damer. if you're French, it's Damer. But is that how your family pronounces it? Is uh, that like the correct da- way? Damer is the best. But do your friends call you Damer? Does anybody like give you full respect in the French heritage? No, no, no. no that's a thousand years ago. <laughs> they gave it up after a while. They gave it up after they invaded Britain. Oh, 1066. That's clever. That's a good move. Uh, you've got a very unusual background, man. I mean, Dennis would not stop raving about you. And then when I started doing research on you, I was like, you were. This is the craziest story of all time. Not not the craziest, but it's pretty crazy. You were in Burning Man during Katrina. Mm. With you were partying in Burning Man with people who work in the Pentagon. Yes, mm-hmm. when Katrina went down. Yep, Camp Pliagon. That is the most ridiculous thing. I, that gives me great discomfort to know the people who work <laughs> in the Pentagon are partying at Burning Man. Rocking. <laughs> we called for Blackhawks, but we got the order denied. But that's a yeah. whole other. That's a whole story. Well, that's well. Well, when Katrina was happening, you guys were amongst the people that were in Burning Man. The very few that had a connection to the outside world. Correct? Yeah, we we had a. You know, we're, our camp was doing the Wi-Fi and the internet for Burning Man, for the public and emergency networks, the private network. And so we had a dish, and we could take over satellites. So one of our guys took over a recon satellite. Took <sighs> that, it offline. Is that legal? Is that legal, uh, or is that a Pentagon move? It's a Pentagon move. So he took this thing offline, and I'd actually been at a uh, it's an NRO, National Reconnaissance Office. I had been at an NRO launch just the year before and then i look over and i see the logo on the laptop and i say what are you doing you know i to this man who remained nameless and he said shut up and turned his laptop away and he pounded in a code and he took this thing offline and so our iridium phone rang you know this pentagon wireless satellite phone that's like the the, the general on the other side is saying what's going on and uh, basically, the he instructed the guy not to answer. So we then had control of this thing, and we could watch Katrina come in. Whoa! Because the government wasn't doing anything with all these national resource assets to to help people, and this was the frustration that he had. He wanted to be evacuated, to be taken out off Playa with Blackhawks and heavy-duty helicopters, because he had just come back from the Asian tsunami. You know, the Bande Aceh event. And then he went straight to, to Afghanistan. And then he went to Baghdad. And then he came to Burning Man. And I looked at this man's face and it was like lined deeply. You know, just unbelievable stress. Can you imagine? This was his job. He works on t- Title 10 money doing extreme comms, extreme emergency relief efforts. And he's invented all this shit. Like cell phones that come down on parachutes. That'll run for a month. And people pick up these cell phones and push a button and there's somebody who speaks Tagalog right on right there to say what do you need what are your what's your position 
Whoa. Isn't that cool? That's amazing. It's amazing. The cell phones run for a month? They're like in rubberized cases. This guy's invented all this technology. So this rubberized case just has a massive battery in it that Some comes pre-charged? Of, yep, yep. Wow. So this guy, you know, really thinking. So here, here we have a natural disaster happening in our own country, you know, barreling in. Nobody at Burning Man knows about it because there's no cell phone service right. then, back in 2007. It's barreling in, and uh, 2005 rather, and we watch it coming in. Now, the, the amazing thing is we, we saw it. You could watch a video from Orbit on this screen, on this guy's screen, and you could watch people walking down. Like we saw a levee breach, the first levee breach in like the Ninth Ward or something. We saw that on the screen from from our camp at Burning Man. So when you say you took over satellites, satellites that are broadcasting, what is it? Broadcasting media? Like it was? It's, is yep, it news? It's high res, no high res reconnaissance imagery. Okay, so it's a satellite that is like one of those spying on bad guy satellites. Exactly. Whoa. Yeah. Now that's I couldn't. Deep. We couldn't read. I could are you tell, allowed to talk about this? Well, you know, if someone finds out about that, is that like is this an issue? I don't think so. I mean, it, <laughs> I'm not. That used, seems like something that would be really frowned upon. Well, the the phone, <laughs> the iridium phone kept ringing. Yeah, it's like your dad's calling. You're having a party. The neighbors are calling your dad, going, "Hey, man, uh, I don't know what your son's doing, but uh, the lights are on. There's a million people on your front lawn, That's right. and the phone just keeps ringing." And you're like, "Uh." But these guys knew who they're dealing with. This is this innovative genius type uh -huh. guy that is totally respected in, in the okay. organization. So the general that initiated the inquiry was covering for him. Oh, I see. So that the general could then contact Space Command and say, I can't get any information. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So I he, see, he I had, see. He had put the satellite in some kind of fail-safe fallback mode. So they would spend the next several days trying to get back into it. Whoa. Right, and so he was just like bypassing could, it and keeping yep, them out. Burn hydrazine and, and locate you know, stuff on, on the playa. Wow. So how and in he, 2005... He didn't tell me all the details, but he said basically, don't, you know, I'm doing this. Right. What what kind of satellite internet connection was available in 2005? It was a very small, slow very, upload, yeah. a little bit quicker download, but still pretty whack, right? By that time, yeah, the next year, I think they got the big tower on the playa, which had the dish that went right to Gerlach with an OC3 connection. But... What, is, that, what does that mean? What did you just it's say? It's like a really fast, uh, sort of almost like a radar Gerlach? Dish. What is Gerlach? Gerlach. Oh, you haven't been out there, huh? No. Oh. You know, I love hippies in small doses. Hippies to me are like pizza. You well, know, you, I just can't, I can't eat pizza every day for like a, a I month. Was, I was with, uh, but you can hang around Pliagon, Pentagon people. And yes, I could probably hang around your camp. Billionaire. if I went out there with billionaire the really dirty with, people. With Sherpas. 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 That's the. They brought Sherpas. You know, they're they're white people. White they're, Sherpas. They're servers for the billionaires in their billionaire camps. Oh, that's too much. And they have walls of motorhomes around. I want to hang out with the hundred thousand in air camp. I don't want to hang out with the billionaire camp. The billionaire I want to hang out with people who are like in RVs and like everybody's clean, but I don't need Sherpas. Well, come. You know what I? <laughs> here's a secret that I'll tell you on air. Oh well, it won't, it won't be a secret. Might so, want to mime it. So. Dennis hasn't been to Burning Man. Dennis McKenna. Good. Me and him. Same page. So I, Two I, old guys who don't want to party with young kids. So I told him <laughs> that Den, to tell you that Dennis would only go to Burning Man if you went. Oh, did and you do it the opposite way? I you did the playing us way. against each other? There you go. Yeah, that doesn't work with me, but thanks. That's sweet. 
<laughs> so Gerlach is I would the, go anywhere with him, though. Honestly. You'd go anywhere with Dennis. Yeah, I, w- I really would go with him, just to talk to him for days. Yeah, yeah, he's he's amazing. The world's most amazing teddy bear. Yeah, he's a, he's a he explained the stoned ape theory in a way that I've never heard anybody explain before with science and the way that psilocybin interacts with the human mind mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a way it was like, oh, yeah, oh, that had to be a part of it. You know, I'm sure there's many factors that led to the the increase in human brain size, but when he describes it, you're like, "Oh, it's fucking mushrooms! It right. has to be." Yeah. When, and you know, we were at a meeting, uh, an event yesterday, where all the psilocybin research was being presented by the the Johns Hopkins teams and UCLA and and uh, Madison. Things these people are doing psilocybin funded research to for smoking cessation, yes, end of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, reduction of anxiety mm-hmm. and PTSD, and yeah. it's, and this one young researcher, Matt, that we talked to, he basically said this amazing thing, which was, we are not plugging up neurotransmitter portals to deal with addiction here. We seem to be hitting higher order brain functions, much higher, rather than you know plugging up your desire for nicotine. We're, when we watch the fMRIs, when we put people under the magnet, which means put them in an fMRI, real-time brain scanning, we watch this the parts of the brain talking to each other. Like the default mode network seems to be changed. And is this why you're under, while they're on mushrooms? Mm-hmm. See, I would have to think that that or would... Or psilocy- psilocybin. Psilocybin. Right? Yeah. I would have to think that would radically affect your experience. Because is an MRI and an fMRI similar? Because I've been in yep. an MRI before. It was like, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> if I was on mushrooms and I was in an MRI, I would freak the fuck out. Ah, okay. Yeah, I've never been in it. You've never been in one? just functional MRI. Right. You've the, never been in an MRI? Never been in an MRI. Oh, I was in one less than a year ago. I had uh, an issue with my back, and I had a... Uh, uh, a bulging disc in my back, so I had to get it mm. examined by mm-hmm. an MRI. And you, you lie down on a plank, like a little skinny little gurney thing, and they roll you into this tube machine that's a giant magnet. And all I could think of was some story that I had heard about some kid who died because they left a fire extinguisher in the room and then turned on the the MRI and it sucked the fire extinguisher into the oh, magnet wow. and wow. killed oh. one freak incident out of a billion... Right. Usage. It was like uh, a torpedo exactly. coming through the room. Yeah, it killed somebody. Um, but it's a very claustrophobic and strange experience. Mm. You, you roll into this thing and just lay there. You can't move. And you're hearing bang, 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 bang. And it's going like tick, 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 tick around your head. It's all just echoing around you. I mean, you get earplugs, put earplugs on, you close your eyes, and you just deal with it. But it's, I would imagine that tripping on that would be incredibly mm-hmm. strange. Mm-hmm. So I would think if fMRI is very similar, to, it's functional MRI, functional that's what it means, MRI. right? If it's the same machine, that would, I mean, the, the old adage is, you know, five grams in silent darkness, right? Mm-hmm. That's what Terrence always described. Terrence McKenna that. always yep. prescribed. Our buddy. This is like the opposite of five grams in silent darkness. Yeah, this is like, uh, well, maybe they've got it just down to a baseball cap now, you know. I don't think they do. I don't think they do. I have, I've had two MRIs, actually, in the past year and a half, so I'm pretty sure. Maybe by the 2050s we'll all be like... This is a theory that I have of where all this is going that I can reveal to you later. Oh, excellent. Mm. I'm absolutely interested. But what I was thinking was that the whole uh, experience of psilocybin depends very much so 
on wh- where you're at while you're experiencing it. Mm-hmm. If you're in a beautiful, peaceful place, like the colors are brighter and you, you see like all sorts of cool visions and you have this connection to nature where you feel like you're grounded. And But if you were in like some horrible place and you were on psilocybin, you would be very sensitive to that horrible place. Mm-hmm. Like I can imagine like doing psilocybin and going to like a war zone, experiencing war. Mm-hmm. You know, or or anything else horrible like the, well, you j- remember the cove. It, what was it? The <clears throat> the movie that depicted the Vietnam vets. You know, yeah. No, what was it? Uh, Jacob's Ladder. No, the ones where they got high in Vietnam on All acid. Of, oh, one movie. One hmm. movie. Yeah. Not Apocalypse Now. Yeah, Apocalypse Now. Weren't the, the, were they on acid? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Martin Sheen was on acid when he punched the, when he did karate in his hotel room and mm-hmm. punched the mirror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, there's another. There's a video of British soldiers on acid in the 50s. Remember that? And they're all yes. laughing and yes. they, they can't be made to fear the enemy or put fear into the enemy at or point. be a part of any organization. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what the British Army was about to become anyway. You know? Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful video. I love that video. Yeah, you know that was I mean? that was peace and love before uh, the Beatles even got rolling in '59, right? Yeah, well, it shows you also what a incredible, like, transformative drug that is, and it kind of really, for the most part, all psychedelics have that capacity. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly transformative capacity because you're here, you're dealing with people whose job is to kill folks. Mm-hmm. That's what their job is. And what are they doing? They're giggling and they're falling down, and they're, you know, they're not thinking about war. They're they're like they think everything's preposterous, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's just amazing when you look at the, the the transformation in our culture from the 1950s to 1970 when everything was clamped down on. Yeah, I mean, what a radical couple decades of change. I mean, people don't realize. I mean, I I try to explain to people that. If you, I, I'm a technology historian, you know, I have the DigiBarn Computer Museum. I've got like 30 tons of vintage computer hardware in the wow. barn, and I've interviewed a thousand people on how did this all happen? How did the ARPANET get made? How did Apple found and all that sort of stuff? And the the years between 1945 and 1970, oh my God, the tr- the change that happened, unbelievable, unbelievable. And really, if you drive into a neighborhood like even around here, San Fernando Valley. Houses built in like 1962. The only difference in technology is that there's Ethernet, like there's an internet, there's a network, and there's computers. Otherwise, you know, House of 1970 had microwave ovens, it had cable TV in the beginning, and all that sort of stuff. It's not a lot of difference. Right. It's just the digital tech. That's the only really big thing that's come in, and that model has now spread to the whole planet. So China did it in shorter time, you know. And, I lived in Czechoslovakia, and they did the whole transition in like eight years. It was incredible. South Africa did the transition in like 15. Just boom, to our model. Wow. Shopping center, you know, off-ramp, you know, wired into the matrix. You know, consumer culture, boom. The whole world just went bang, 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 adopting that. It's a very strange time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And everyone's rushing to that model. I mean, there's no, no stopping it. Well... It's everything's tied into it now too, which is really spooky. You know, I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by ancient cultures, by the idea that there were great civilizations that fell apart, mm. and like what caused it? Was it natural disaster? Was it this? Was it that? And 
when you look, you had, you had Graham Graham Hancock on yes. last month. Yeah. yeah, I've had Graham on a few times. He's awesome, and I've also had Randall Carlson on, who's also mm. really enlightening when it comes to that subject because he's a true expert in cataclysmic disasters, yeah, particularly the, the comet. The, yes, the, the putative comet impact mm-hmm. that created all that flooding. Yeah, yeah well, amazing. That, one of his. I mean, he's he's an expert on pretty much every significant traceable hmm. impact. And it's it's really crazy. Yeah, he he can like drive his SUV and read land, right? Mm-hmm. He can sort of read the, the, yeah. the what the land's teaching him of what happened. Well, he'll show you some things on satellite images that if you looked at it, you would go, "Oh, that's just some hills." And he'll but the way he describes it, he'll draw it out for you. you no, know, here's where the crater is, and this is where the crater is in the middle of this ocean on mm-hmm. this this part of the ocean. And if you follow that crater out, you realize these are where the waves hit wow. and tore the landscape apart. Like you're looking at a gigantic version of what you see when you see the ocean leave marks on the sand when high tide comes in. But you're seeing this unbelievably extreme version of it that probably happened instantaneously. You remember uh, Jerry Purnell and Larry Niven's sci-fi classic, Lucifer's Hammer? No, I don't. It was fantastic. It was about a comet impact on the Pacific. And the scene, these are are master sci-fi writers. They both live in here in the San Fernando Valley. And this wave was 1,200 feet tall, and he did. They describe it coming across the Southland, and there's this surfer. Now the surfer out on you know, Santa Monica, right, decides to take this wave. Now what's happening before the wave arrives is the ocean is roaring, you know, at 100 miles an hour out toward the sea. So this guy's been carried out, you know, 40 miles out to sea because this wave is sucking down the coastline. But he knows what is going on because he saw the fireball. He says, I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to try to take this wave. And this is a great you know, sci-fi novel, and he does it. And what happens is the, the wave comes you know, across. He looks down, and he can, he's on the face of this wave as it's coming across Los Angeles. And, and he's looking down at the city, you know, like 800 feet below, as this wave is because he is on the face of it, and he's managing his board. Oh and then he, then he looks up. <laughs> And and the, the, the language is great. It's like, and the first interstate building hit him like a fly swatter, you know. Oh, my <laughs> so God. That's a crazy way to die. And the wave crashed. It went inland to, like, uh, Palm Springs, kind of Indio. That's where, and it created sort of What's temporary the name ocean. Of this book? Lucifer's Hammer. Worth getting? Worth getting. And here's a really- Who wrote it again? Uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell. They're the two great hardcore sci-fi writers- and Larry told me about 15 years ago, he said, let me tell you something. Uh, I was in my office uh, when there was this earthquake. Like, you've been in the Southland long enough, right? There's this earthquakes every X amount of time, and they do a certain amount of damage. Like, Northridge was big. But before Northridge, Larry's sitting in his office at like 8 in the morning, and an earthquake hits. I think it's the Whittier quake or something. And the last thing he remembers is a bookshelf coming right at him, Right. And he comes to, and he is blacked out. I mean, he's blacked out for a couple hours, right? And he has his vision comes to, he sees a spine of books. And one of them says, Lucifer's Hammer, hardcover edition. And he realizes, I was almost killed by my life's work. He <laughs> <laughs> and Lucifer's Hammer knocked him out. Wow. So he bolted the shelf to the wall for the next one. That's a good move. <laughs> Bolting shelves is always a good move here. Um... 
we started this off talking about um, being fascinated with ancient civilizations and the fact that we don't really like we know quite a bit about ancient Egypt in in sort of if you look at it the fact that it's 2500 plus BC mm. you know we know quite a bit that's a long time ago and we have some pretty incredible structures that still remain from them which is pretty amazing but no writing I mean just hieroglyphs we don't have books mm-hmm. we don't have books, like yeah. va- the library of Alexander was burned to the ground and who knows what was in that you know there's so much lost when it comes to ancient civilizations and one of the things that I worry about is that we're moving everything digital and everything even more than just digital people are storing things like in the cloud like crazy mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that so when, if we get a Lucifer's hammer, it's yeah. all gone, right? Well, that's the thing. It's, if we left behind some flash drives and some hard drives and some old computers and stuff, and then everybody else died except for like a few thousand people that lived like nomads, mm-hmm. how long would that stuff even make it? How I long mean, would it take? It would all be absorbed by the earth, right? You remember Wally trying to get all the trash compacted and everything, and he's choosing things that he would, you know, the Wally the robot from the movie, the Pixar movie. Oh, okay. And he's like, Oh, keep that, you know, because he's he's making a library of parts so he can keep himself going. He's, right. he's kept himself going for fifty thousand years this way, and and the shit he's throwing away, like he does keep an iPod because it plays his favorite movie, you know, and he's able to rig it up. He's a robot, right? He's a little Macintosh robot, right? But uh, it's interesting to see Pixar's depiction of what is going to trash in when the Earth is so toxic and is covered with trash and the people have evacuated and are living aboard a ship because the Earth's toxified. Well, we're sort of banking on the fact that nothing happens. When we have, like, the Georgia Guidestones, which are dubious. It's very weird. It's Mm -hmm. like key population to 500,000. Was 500 million worldwide or something like that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like very, you know, interesting rules to live by, but it doesn't tell you anything about how to set up solar power, you mm-hmm. know, what, what is the internet, how is it? how does it connect China to the UK, you know, there's none of that. Well, so, you know, here's an interesting thing for you. Britain, southern Britain, when Rome fell, right, and the Romans left, no one was there to maintain lead pipes. So the Romans had invented fantastic bath systems with lead pipes that that could run cold water, hot water, they had valves and everything. And so all this stuff went to potty and the roads went bluey and the Roman roads were straight and they had these mounds on either side that you could have watchers and stuff like that. And it was super high tech, right? And then Rome went away and all this stuff just fell into ruin and the British forgot how to make bricks. So there were no brick buildings. You know, they had to go back to knocking out stone to build the first Christian churches in England were made out of because they did not have brick technology. It was wow. gone. Gone. What well, was a classic example of like what's going on right now is we have so many things that we need. Like I had a joke that I was doing about how uh, what I thought happened with Egypt was that the dumb people just outfucked the smart people and left behind a bunch of shit that they didn't understand. And that if I left you alone in the woods right now with a hatchet, how long before you could send me an email? Right. Like, we have so much that we rely on on a daily basis. I mean, you might understand it, but I don't understand it. You I, know, most people that use it don't understand it. One of the most terrifying TV shows I've ever seen about this is James Burke's Connections, which came around 1980. And in the first episode, what you see is this British guy, you know, he's master presenter, right? And he's walking up to a screen door on a farm, and he's saying, the electricity's been off for a week, two weeks, four weeks. 
the people are starving. People are trying to leave the city. You escape the city. You manage to get to this farm. The farm is abandoned, right? You know it's one of the places you could survive. You are coming up to the door. The people are not there. What do you do? You go, you see there's a milking machine. You can't use it. It's no electricity. You see everything that you can't use to farm, even though you, you maybe you understand farming, but modern farming. Then you go up into the attic of the barn and you find a discarded plow from like the 1910s. That is your tool. You have to know how to use that and how to put that onto animals, onto pulling draft animals to break the soil. You're now in the 11th century. If you can't master that plow, if you can't find that plow and know everything there is to do about that technology, you're out of luck. Everything else is just trash at that point. And that would go away in a thousand years. If that was still left around, a thousand years from now, that would be nothing. No plows and no understanding. No nothing. So how much do you think happened like that with like ancient Egypt? I mean, how much of that stuff just whatever they built or whatever they designed. I mean, we, we we're essentially, we have like fossil remnants of their civilization. We have what, what survived in pottery form and mm -hmm. in stone form. The paper's all gone, either burned yeah. or destroyed or thrown in rivers or whatever. There's very little that's telling, I mean, how much of what we have today would be around in just like a thousand years? All the computers would be gone, oh, the cars would be gone. You know, there's that great, TV, was it on Discovery or History, where they showed the Earth after... Life five, after people or something? Life after people. Yeah. And man, you watch Manhattan, you watch... the At 500 years, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge finally comes down. Because it's so well built. You know, the, the caissons were built incredibly strongly, the, the cable ties and everything. They figured it would take about 500 years for those cables to rust through and the, finally the decking, whatever's left of it, to come down. That's nothing. Yeah. That's nothing. But that would be the last piece in New York. Otherwise, it's just their skeletal frameworks. The, the blackberry bushes would come back. The streams would come back in their normal, on Manhattan Island, right? It would just come back. Deer would come back in. And one of the last things would be this, this Brooklyn Bridge coming down. That is so crazy. But ha that, that, it totally makes sense. I mean, nothing, none of that stuff lasts. It's not going to last. No, we don't build. I mean, the pyramids, did you know that the pyramids... I didn't know this. We, we had this wonderful lecture by an Egyptologist who worked on the Giza Plateau for like 20 years. And he said, we've discovered so many things about the city of artisans and craftsmen and teams that built the pyramids by excavating this massive area now that they've done. He said, one of the things we discovered is the pyramids were clad, clad with polished limestone. Yeah, and they and, used it all to make Cairo. They chipped it all away. Yeah, the... And you find this in, in uh, vases in China. The, the, this stuff was taken off. The cladding is... It, the pyramids used to be shine. They used to be like a prism. Yeah. They used to say, blind you. If you're coming at a certain angle in the desert in the sun, they were just this incredible shining pyramid. Can you imagine the power on the average nomad seeing that? With a gold cap, too. There was mm. a golden a cap golden to it. A golden cap. Wow. Yeah. So like our money, you know, <laughs> with a little eye on mm -hmm. the top. Yeah. But and so people ripped the stuff off and they took it and it's all over the world and assholes, assholes but, ruin everything. But this, <laughs> but this guy, he showed us this. Uh, initially, he went to the Giza Plateau in the seventies. Uh, he was part of some kind of a cult that believed the pyramids were built by extraterrestrials, and he was literally in this cult. And he went to 
uh, see it. He was sort of like sent there by the cult, got so interested in excavation and the reality of trying to really solve it. He sort of left the cult, went back, got a PhD, and he's been working there for 20 years. And, <laughs> and he gave us, oh, yeah, it was amazing. Wow. And he showed us, you know, he said all the Hollywood mythology of slaves building the pyramids, and it was all completely, you know, hooey. Right. Here's, here's the plan of the city of the artisans and the construction teams and the contractors that built the pyramid. Central Avenue, big hospital complex, the best one in, in the ancient world, huge bakery. This bakery would make conical bread loaves that the guys could put a rope around, throw over their backs, and then go up to the job site and they ate the bread. And then he said, we kept cutting down through sand through these clay layers that didn't see, they, they shouldn't be there. There's, you know, 20 feet down, and there's a layer of, of clay. They figured out the clay was from a quarry up, up the Amazon, up the Nile, rather. You know, wrong <laughs> brain going to the wrong place. And then they said, well, what on earth is going on? And so they started excavating horizontally, and they found that these were clay tracks. And they said, well, what on earth is this? And then they started saying, these, these clay tracks matter a lot. They're not just leftover layers in the desert. And then they, they mapped them out, and there was a whole network of them. And what they were were low-friction slipways. Oh. And so they said they put the blocks on some kind of a canvas, on some kind of a thing. They had mastered low-friction. They'd figure out that clay... And a, and a layer, like a micro layer of water on it, creates a hydraulic system that you can move massive tonnage on. And so they built one of them using the same clay from the same quarry up the Nile. They made one. They brought all these Cairo University engineering students out, or probably mechanical engineering, and they put like a multi-ton block on canvas on this track. And these guys pulled, and they were able to get it up to some speed of like 10 kilometers an hour. Wow. So this is how they moved the volume of the blocks. Wow, Amazing. that's incredible. And it was probably started out, you know, they've been building pyramids for a thousand years before that. And so there's the famous bending pyramid that's like not collapsed but about to mm -hmm. because they didn't understand foundation. Right. Because you, you can't build a foundation for a pyramid. It's on sand. Most of them were. And by the time of Giza, they'd mastered it. You fill the area with water. Like you, you, you basically pack sand down. Huge area, acres and acres. Fill it with water, and then teams would go on. They would pack the sand up to the level of the water. Water's flat. Right. And then when they started laying down their sort of first caissons, that would evenly compress the sand. The, the key thing is, is massive compressile strength evenly over the area so that the thing will not bend and fall down. Wow. And they had to do it so accurately that over 2,500,000 blocks, there could be like such little deviation little in order for, to line up at the top. And That's then they, so incredible. They learned that these guys had mastered uh, a whole field which we lost, which we didn't even know existed, sand hydraulics. So these guys were literally using hydraulic. Sand is a flowing thing. It's like water, right? You have an hourglass. It looks like water flowing mm -hmm. down, but it's sand. And so to, to set keystones, they would have a column of sand, get the keystone to the top, and they would pull plugs out, and the sand would come down and it would, the keystone would come down absolutely perfectly in the right place. Sand hydraulics. Wow. Sand foundations, clay for slipways. Smart dudes. Isn't it amazing when you say 
what you said a thousand years, like they had been making pyramids for a thousand years. We can barely comprehend what a thousand years is. Mm. A thousand years to us is like, if you want to go back to, you know, 1014, mm. can, can we mm -hmm. even, uh, we that's can't. like Genghis Khan times. Yeah, we I mean, can't comprehend. And of course, the, uh, cathedrals yeah. took a thousand years to master. Right. So think about the fact that they were doing that, making these things for a thousand years. And even though, as far as we know, they didn't have electronics, they didn't have computers, they didn't have any of these things, they still had the human mind. Yeah. They had the human mind without electricity, without engines. They had contemplative mm -hmm. time. Right. And they had a culture that supported it. Well, they also had this incredible connection with the cosmos because of the fact that they weren't dealing with light pollution like we are. Mm. We've done a really weird thing in our arrogance. I mean, it's not arrogant that we did it. We did it out of innovation, out of this just burning desire to continually create new and better things. Mm -hmm. But our cities, which is the giant population centers, we've essentially cut off our view of the cosmos. Yeah, it's like almost amazing. entirely. It's incredible. They and didn't, and they were entirely invested in not just the cosmos, but their positions in the cosmos, the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the mm -hmm. astrological charts, and where things lined up, and where, you know, I mean, the, 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 the shafts in the Great Pyramid that mm -hmm. would lead to various amazing. constellations. And then the ley lines of Europe, and then so incredible. Dennis and I in August were run, running around Machu Picchu, oh. and he said, we've got to find the observatory. We've got to find the observatory, and he knows this place pretty well. I had a wonderful tour of it from him, and we found it, and it has this rock that has all these angled pieces in it, and it's a star mapper, a, a big, big rock, multi-ton rock, but it's carved, so if you look this way, you're going you're gonna to position on this star and position on that star. And and the and it had a sort of a portal up the top, and this is what's remaining of Machu Picchu's observatory. Right. So it's like all these people had this knowledge. Yeah, as long as people stay alive, and they keep innovating, you know, they they do it differently than we're currently experiencing it right now. But they figure out a way to do it in some really intense, very sophisticated way. And if you compare, what is that, Jamie? That's the observatory, I think. Is Machu that Picchu. it? That probably yeah. That looks like wow. Yeah. And the uh, the star map thousands of rock. years ago, right? This is like a, at least a thousand years this ago, is right? Like Machu Picchu, fifteen hundred, fourteen hundred. Okay, so less. Less, yeah. In wow. Fact, in fact, the Inca complexes. So Dennis and I and our group were running around a lot of Inca complexes, including Pisac and the other places, and and they those dudes knew how to cut rock so perfectly. I mean, when Do you they know how they did that. Uh, you know, it's not known. They could have used ropes. Haven't you ever watched Ancient Aliens? Uh, you know, I've never Come on, seen dude. that. Aliens. I've never seen that. It was alien. Everything's aliens. I'm. I'm never I'm, seen that show. I'm a born skeptic. I'm a Canadian, <laughs> so you know. Canadians how we are. are more skeptical. Oh, much more. Less religious. Is that We're, what it is? We we have uh, basically armchair views of America. Uh, so I I grew up, you know, watching all Canadians sort of watch America with exhilaration and horror. And admiration. From your porch. From our porch. Well, you know, they say that there's a joke about North America, which is there's it's a three-story apartment block. In the middle apartment is this out-of-control freaking party and beer bottles and crap being thrown. That's America. Uh, in the bottom is Mexico, and all the beer bottles and the crap are falling on that apartment. And up above is Canada, and the Canadians are leaning over the, the balcony saying, can you keep it down, eh? <laughs> So that's... <laughs> the problem is Toronto has Rob Ford. 
Oh, Toronto is Rob Ford. Yeah, so that's changing. He'll You're soon, getting more American. He'll, he'll soon be exported. So. You think so? Yeah, well, you should have him on the show. I would have him on the show. Absolutely. I'd get him high. Get him oh, high absolutely. crack cocaine. I would smoke crack with him just oh. to get him to do it. Right here on the show. Like you That's did one with, drug with that Graham. really get you in trouble. You, you've helped Graham break his fast. <laughs> well, he wanted to. Look, he, he kept talking about it. And I'm like, he, you want to try it? He kept looking over yeah. your way. Yeah. I'm like, come on. He was great, though. He took a little baby hit, another little baby hit, and then he was off to the races. You wow. could see it, like the cannabinoid receptors firing and all the words the flowing stars out stars in his eyes and yeah he mm. was he became like terrence well oiled yes yes yeah, yeah. well it's back to the subject this is it is amazing when you think of the fact that these people did have these incredibly sophisticated societies we just don't recognize them as incredibly sophisticated because they didn't have electricity because mm-hmm. they didn't have the combustion engine like mm-hmm. those are our our benchmarks if you don't have that you guys are dopes but meanwhile, the reality is they had some stuff that we still are perplexed by, some structures that are, have taken decades upon decades of some of the greatest archaeologists, geologists, and, and engineers mm-hmm. to try to even get a theory as to how they put these things together. Mm-hmm. And that's all we've got, right? I mean, we've got some pretty good information on a lot of things, like you were talking about the sand hydraulics, but as far as like the ability to go out and build one right now, good fucking luck. Well, like at one of these ruins, so soon as the Spanish arrived in the Incan lands, right, what they did was have the Inca knock down their own temples. Oh, God. Right? And then th- those stones were carried down fucking white people in to build uh catholic <laughs> cathedrals the next Ugh. the next earthquake happened the catholic cathedrals were flattened and the incan complex were fine you know because there's 12 to 14 degree angles on all the windows it's built to survive earthquakes for a thousand years it's incredible and the water channels that there's been no maintenance for 500 years they're still pumping out billions of gallons of water for all these farms amazing it, amazing and and I stood there in awe of a 30-ton block. You could see this This was above Cusco. And this block was carved like doop, 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 doop. What does that the, mean? Doop, 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 oh, doop, doop. <laughs> a- angles. Weird, oh, angles. Weird okay. angles, but flat faces. And okay. then there was a block next to it that was, was perfectly matched. I mean, no gaps. Uh. And then the one down below. I said the stonemason stood and studied a pile of rocks and in his head, because he was such a deep, profound, present engineer, expert, he saw the pattern of these rocks and how they could fit together with the least amount of cutting and with perfection. These guys had this in their heads that mm. they could like, boom, I know, cut that, take that one, that's going to go in the center. And then they had to lift them and they had to cut them first and then lift them into place. They had to be perfect. So this guy had three-dimensional mental acuity that, blows our minds. I mean, any kind of World of Warcraft player couldn't navigate that space. The three-dimensional acuity of these people. Yeah, it, it really is incredible when you think of what has all been accomplished long before people invented the internet, long before yeah. people were, you know, going to the library to get their books on all this stuff. Or maybe they were, you know, Library of Alexandria, of course, right? Yeah. But it's it's thought of as primitive you know we we still think yeah. of them as primitive and when you compare the uh the work of like john anthony west and graham hancock and robert shock and all these geologists and pe- people that are pointing to all these erosion marks going you know we might be dealing with some 
really ancient civilization mixed in mm. with some other civilizations that are like, we, everyone wants to date Egypt around the same time. Mm-hmm. But there's a growing movement of people that are saying, you're dealing with some pretty significantly like, different like the age structures. Of the age of the Sphinx, yes. which I know Graham uh, covered in your show yeah. with him, your last show, which is fascinating. Yeah. Thousands of years of rainfall erosion, and the last time there was rainfall in the Nile Valley was 9,000 B.C. And did you know that when I was visiting the Sphinx about 20 years ago, our guide said, did you know that this thing has been, you know, for 10,000 years, but in the last 15, it has been so damaged by Cairo City Sanitation Department raising the water table. So every he said every toilet that flushes in the city of Cairo is taking a chunk out of the interior of the Sphinx. Wow. So we are pumping in paraffin wax to keep it from coming apart. So, I mean, look at the destructive power of our civilization, just haphazard. And, and, and the archaeologists that gave us this tour of the Giza Plateau excavation, um, they he said, look, Here's modern Cairo coming up over top of our excavation site. We can't excavate under that. Notice the warren of chaotic streets and bad planning and bad everything. And on top of this beautifully thought out, you know, fully functional city of artisans and construction people, how have we evolved? Tell us. Yeah, isn't that fascinating that this really wacky city is over one of the greatest ancient cities ever. Mm-hmm. Like Cairo's this Mex- crazy, Mexico chaotic City place. is yeah, another example. Thing. Yeah. So how are we evolving exactly? Well, we're doing something because <laughs> Mexico City during the Aztecs, if they knew what we know now, or the Incas, they would have known that Cortez was an asshole mm. and they would have shot him mm-hmm. and they would have never thought he was a warrior that was part God on a horse. You know, they, they would have not had any misconceptions about him because they would have known what a horse is. Right. They would have had the internet. They would have known what horse shit is. <laughs> well, they, horse shit, but yeah, literally and figuratively, right? So, so here I want to propose you a theory okay. that's kind of captivated me, and it's partly woo and it's partly science, but it'll really... That's my favorite stuff. It's your favorite stuff. I like half a so, woo. So half a woo. So yeah, you got a t-shirt that has a woo on the front, woo on the back. So if you turn around, you're woo-woo. But. So the, the Eleusinian Mysteries, you know about mm-hmm. the Eleusinian Mysteries. Yes. So they ran for... 1700, 1800 years, they ran, they started out before Gre- the Greek civilization. Well, explain people what it means. What it, what it was, it was a kind of like a burning man, or more serious than a burning man, it was an initiation ceremony that happened at Eleusis in Greece. And it was run by women, sort of high-class women. They were kind of a monopoly. And when they finally got this thing cranked up, because we don't know much about the earlier history, but you can go to the Temple of Eleusis today. It was destroyed in the 4th century by characters that I want to bring up later. This is why we might be still in the culture of the people who destroyed Eleusis. So they built this thing. So the, the fully powered up Eleusis theme park transformational experience was a thousand-person buried temple. could could house a thousand initiates buried under the ground. So that the people couldn't see out. So they were totally in an internal process. The initiates came from all over the Mediterranean. They included Roman emperors, philosophers, etc. And you had to go to Eleusis once in your life. Because the thought was you then became a human being. So they came off their boats. They landed. They, they wore the same garb. They had a fasting diet. Sound familiar? They had a fasting Sounds diet. Sounds like Ramadan. 
It sounds like uh, what what I would say today. It sounds like people who are doing initiatory practice ayahuasca, for example. People are going to Mecca too. People same thing. Going, wearing the same clothes. Exactly. Bring them down, and so the initiates would walk through villages, and the villagers would come out, and their job was to catcall, to to swear and and bring the people down. Say, oh, you've got a big nose. So so if it's a noble person who's a lot of wealth. They're getting screamed at by villagers, and they get knocked back to lo- knock them their their ego out, and and to dissolve them. Basically, a boundary dissolution exercise. They were walking next to fields which had wheat, which had tiny mushroom-like purple. It's a perpia. A brain is shot today, but it was a, a basically a, a rust that would grow on the wheat that was used to make the kaikion drink that would be given to the initiates after nine days or eight or eight or nine days. So this is like some ergot-based thing? Ergot-based is an ergotamine, sort of an ergot-based. How do we know this? Because I thought that was like a giant mystery as to what they were taking. Like some folks thought that it was psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Some people felt mm-hmm. it was an ergot beer. Mm-hmm. It was some sort of an ergot beer. I mean, Hoffman's book, he talks about it probably being an ergot beer of some sort. Right. But it, there was definitely an initiant potion. That was extremely powerful. But what makes you think that it was what you're saying? Uh, because you can find this, you know, in the area of Eleusis today, you can find, and I'm no expert. I mean, you should have an expert on this on the show. Right. I've, I've read a number of books about this. But but when I piece this together, so there's a fantastic book called Psychedelia by Patrick Lundborg that came out last year. He passed away, unfortunately, the author. is quite a young man. But in the first chapter, he details this. And what he says is the initiates would come in, they would go into the temple, they were on this fasting diet, the temple, uh, the people who were running the temple, it was sound and music, it was olfactory, smoke, color, uh, and they were driven to this intense state, and then they were given the kaikion. And I think they, you know, uh, philosoph- Greek philosophers and others have written about their experience at, at Eleusis. And they would emerge um, really in, in, a, in incredible, maybe they got incredibly high, maybe their boundaries would dissolve, but they emerged with visionary, uh, coming back with vision of what to do, what to do in their world. And when they, when they went home, they boarded their ships and whatnot, and they went home. And what did we see happening in that period? Greek theater, mathematics, the academy, road construction, hyd- you know, hydraulics. Uh, the idea of a city, organizational structure, uh, the republic, the idea of polity, the idea of representation. And the Eleusinian Mystery School was just one of many that were going on, but Eleusis was a big deal, right? Eleusis was was destroyed partly in some periods, and then a Roman emperor would, would reboot it. And, and finally, and I think it was the end of the 4th century, coming in from the north, were sort of the savage Germanic tribes that were basically taking out the whole Western Roman Empire. And guess who was coming in from the east? Black-robed Christians who were described as, you know, cranky fellows with a real um, sort of obsessive, perfectionist, reductionist kind of negative. They were described as really nasty characters. They formed this compact, and together they destroyed the temple at Eleusis. So my woo-woo theory is, are we living in an inferior culture that has no initiation? Replacing initiation, powerful initiation, with what? You know, 
all these other structures of, of abuse and usury, you know, church structures, corporate structures, commercial structures. Are we juvenile? You know, are we, were we made juvenile by the fact that we didn't have a powerful initiatory experience that dissolved our boundaries, that, that opened us to vision, that, that, that made us human beings? I, th- I certainly think that's <clears throat> very arguable. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you if you compare our resources to their resources, what we've accomplished and what we've managed to fuck up in comparison to what they managed to create yeah. with, with no combustion engine, with no hydraulics. Of course, with no- of course, they had slave cultures and there were a lot of... You know, but here's here's the other thing, and you, you should ask Graham when he's next on that. I'd love to, to hear his response to this. What did you have before the rise of civilization, especially in the Mediterranean, you had the Upper Paleolithic, you had village cultures, tribal cultures, you had quite a bit of conflict, but quite a bit of advancement, but that was, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And then suddenly, and and for sure, they had some kind of initiatory experience for their youth, especially for young men. Because as we know, you know, in, in, Excuse me. in cultures of... Uh, indigenous cultures that still have an initiatory practice i think that's a very important part of like life having some very clear like graduation process exactly and we have it throughout schools we have it in grade school we have it in martial arts martial I mean, arts very is important one, yeah jujitsu and martial arts is where we're bringing it back right mm-hmm. strong initiation yes because you know you probably see this because the people that haven't had that they they cruise lost. oh they're yeah. lost and they you know the ones that have been very pam- you know pampered and helicopter parenting we all talk about this and they're now talking about the hoop jumping uh, circus trained circus pig kids that upper middle class parents say jump through this hoop jump through this hoop you know they're three or four years old and they're jumping through these hoops because why because they're being prepped to get into top level universities right and so they they jump through all these hoops and there's a a professor at Harvard written a book about all this, and he said he's watched in his incoming classes of these kids that are really good at achieving the goals, but they can't deal with ambiguity, they can't deal mm. with irony, they can't deal with creativity, creativity. They just living go, outside the box, right? So they're going to jump to you know the investment bank, or but they're not very functional. So because they've not had a you know a, a practice of initiation they've not have a leveling practice a boundary dissolving practice they've been in this programmatic evolution and it's dangerous yeah i, I think that there should be some sort of graduation process for v- various stages in your life that sort of establish the fact that you've learned from your mistakes you've grown you've achieved and you've gotten through some you've overcome some adversity and you're here i, I got it through scouting in canada because we had mm-hmm. a total wilderness situations where we a bunch of us almost died a couple of times you know we were out in 45 below, below uh, cracking cold january and we were in a snowshoe ca- uh, hike with uh, 60 pounds of birch bark bog uh, logs in our backpacks to toughen ourselves up it was just there were no adults and we were climbing over a mountain range and we this the cold snap came in and i remember like I said, we are this close to hypothermic, somebody dying in this our group of like six or eight of us, or 14 years old, whatever, because I went out to take a, a leak one night, and you can imagine you're wearing jeans. I mean, this is the 70s, you know, we don't have proper clothes even. And I took, I sat down on this rock, and I took a leak, and then I came back past on the next day. I mean, my, my piss was freezing on the way out. 
And I realized it's a dead stallion. It's frozen solid. Wild horse. Frozen solid. You know, dead. And you and thought it was a rock. I thought it was a rock. I sat on it. Wow. And we saw wolves, and they were really skinny, you know, in the distance. And we realized we are really close to this is, you know, if and, and somebody goes into hypothermic shock in that environment. You're done. You're done. And another time we were hiking on the West Coast Trail in Vancouver Island. We made a wrong turn. And the whole group, we found ourselves in this, you know, this rock outcropping with a tide coming in and, and storm surge. And we had to, like, cling onto this thing all night. I mean, we couldn't set up any kind of camp. And it was like, those were important experiences. Yeah, rites of passage, overcoming adversity, all those different things. I think they should probably be engineered into our cultures and our communities. I have a theory that goes along with your theory. I think your theory is probably absolutely correct that, you know, we are a, in some ways, less sophisticated or less advanced society, at least less, uh, we're, we're most certainly more materialistic, right? Most mm -hmm. certainly mm -hmm. more dependent upon the internet and most certainly more dependent upon computers, technology. I have a theory about people and this it's a very it's very shaky but here's my theory my theory is i think that everything is natural and i think that all behavior like wolves chasing out the beta and the alpha taking over i think like you know birds of prey feasting on other birds and bears eating salmon and all these complex ecosystems that we see all over the world we just accept them as being natural because they're a part of the world that we didn't alter mm -hmm. but ourselves we don't look of as natural because we've altered ourselves but i think we are entirely natural and i think our our society and our civilization and our as fucked up as it is it's also natural and i think the purpose that it serves is we live to give birth to technology. Marshall McLuhan said that human beings are the mm -hmm. sex organs of the machine world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we are doing right now by our obsession with the newest, greatest iPhone, Elon Musk just released a Tesla that goes zero to 60 in two seconds. Right. Oh my God, yeah. it's amazing. I have to have it. And by continuing to be obsessed with acquiring the latest and greatest gadgets, we push that innovation further and further. We fuel it with money. Mm -hmm. And that eventually it's going to give birth to an artificial life form. Mm -hmm. It's inevitable. Mm -hmm. And I think it will give birth to the next thing. And I think we are like a caterpillar that is becoming a butterfly and we have no idea what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We're just in the middle of doing it and we're just like, oh, it was so much better back in the old days when we chopped wood. And the reason why we think that is because we know inevitably that we are, we're not going to last. Mm -hmm. We know that mm -hmm. it's, it's just a matter of X amount of time before we're, we're outdated. Well, here's something, a nugget to add. I, I believe you're right. And here's a nugget to add for you that goes back to our deepest history. This goes to my practice. I do what I call endogenous visioning. Sometimes in science it's called thought experiments or Gedanken experiments. But I can close my eyes, mostly closed eyes, and I could go into worlds. And that's what I've been using to design the spacecraft for NASA and origin of life. I work in the origin of life field. and I sort of visualize molecular storms and flows and all that stuff because I have this practice of, of just doing it and you know, not taking anything, just doing it. And what happened about two years ago, I was reading an article in Science that all it was an article was about is, like, we found a femur bone that was this small, you know, just a few, you know, like a portion of a centimeter, a few millimeters, of, like 
quarter of an inch long or half an inch long, and that it's a femur bone from our ancestors, the ancestors of all monkeys, primates, lemurs, all of them, all of us dudes. It's our common ancestor. It's 55 million years old. And then they had an artist's conception of this thing that would have been about two inches long. And, and they said, well, our ancestor lived in the forest canopy and ate insects. We were insectivores. So I closed my eyes and I said, okay, I want to go back there. I want to do an endogenous thought experiment in science and see what comes in from the ether. What was our life like then? Because that's a big clue of who we are and where we're going. And I had this go into a, a kind of a dream state, sort of meditation and breath work and what I go into the dream state and I see this branch at dawn and there's a ball, a ball of us all clumped together because insectivores, they, they protect each other by uh, going close, warmth and all that stuff. And I watched as this young protoprimate pulled herself away from the ball. The story always comes to me to do this kind of shit. And she's creeping out on the, the limb at dawn. Why? Because she sees a glistening globule of something. And why is this important? Because that's sugar. That's tree sap that comes out at night. And the diet of these insectivores are uh, leaves and flowers and stuff and catching like a dragonfly, which is a major kill for protein, and sucking down tree sap. So it's a fries, a burger, and a shake diet. That's our diet. <laughs> That's an insectivore diet. And she's creeping out on the limb, and she's sucking down this globule of sweet. And one eye is looking back to see if the, somebody in the community notices her because she'll get busted. Sound familiar? The other eye is looking forward on the limb, and it sees this very trippy scale pattern, this trippy pattern of color. She doesn't know what it is. But what it is, it's a tree snake. And the tree snake was this sole giant predator that survived the impact in Mexico that killed the dinosaurs. And then we rose after that, although we may have been earlier. The tree snake is on the branch waiting for her, waiting for her. And she, so she's getting high on all this sugar because we still get high on sugar. Here we are drinking our coffees, right, with our sugar. And she's watching that. And that tree, that pattern of scales has evolved to mesmerize her. It's totally there to captivate her. Why? Because the head is under the branch. The head is about to come up. If she doesn't snap out of it and leap back, it will snap her ass down. So this happened for tens of millions of years. This is co-evolution. What I believe from that, that vision that I had was, I said, oh my God, this is why we're mesmerized by screens. We're the only animal that's mesmerized by this the screen of a phone or you know texture patterns movies moving images it's totally hardwired into us we're also terrified of snakes i mean we have a hardwired circuit in our brain that if you see something that looks like a snake you just jump involuntarily right that's in there too i thought that serpent on that limb that co-evolved our brain to vision that gave us color vision that gave us a 3D high acuity uh, vision that we were talking about the ancient peoples because we could see incredible pattern. Why? Because we evolved for, for 30 million years with those guys. We had to solve that problem in evolution for 30 million years. That's a lot of time. It's a lot of programming. It's a lot of brain development because the ones that got snapped down weren't as good. 
It's all good old-fashioned Darwinian evolution. And I sometimes have these conversations with what I call the madre, so I, the, the mother nature or the Gaian planetary plant bolus. And I said to her at one point, I said, you, co- you use this technique to evolve us, to evolve our vision so we could drive cars and we could create media and all this sort of stuff. But it is now coiled around the planet. Technology is coiled around the planet, squeezing out the lifeblood of the planet. And I asked her, does this bother you? And she said, no, as long as you do the prerogative of my prerogative, of life's prerogative, find me a new home. I must make a copy. That's what life does. This, well, this, this planet is a womb and it's a tomb. Okay, this is all just a crazy vision you have, This is crazy vision okay. stuff. It's a womb and a tomb. It's a womb Find and me a, a tomb. new home. You, you're talking about space travel, it, interplanetary the, space travel. Yeah, and, and what we've done as a species, in, so I do a lot of this work for NASA of designing uh, strange spacecraft and What exactly is your and, educational background when it comes to that stuff? That stuff, it was, you know, it was started out as good old USC Trojan. You know, graduating in electrical engineering in the 80s, but of course there was hardly any software out at that time. And I was trying to do artificial life in 1987. Can you imagine this? On computers at USC, connected to the ARPANET, and it was too soon. So I restarted it 22 years later, and I made a project called the EvoGrad. But it was too freaking soon. So I. So you're kind of like the like the virtual reality people were also too soon. They were, and. Um, in 1993-94, you know, we all read Snow Crash and we read Neuromancer and all those sorts of things. And we watched, uh, you know, uh, Minority Report and all this, that sort of stuff. Um, but I actually started organizations to kickstart virtual worlds on the Internet. In 94-95, we had the first conference. I wrote a book called Avatars and helped to network together and get all these people in the same room that were building Avatar Cyberspace and three-dimensional you move through and you see objects, fish and people and whatever, and they talk to you and et cetera, et cetera. And that's how I got connected with Terrence, Terrence McKenna. Because Terrence was fascinated by that. And I was the go-to guy, so he came. <laughs> he came to the farm and sat at our little table, and I put him into these virtual worlds. But it was an amazingly powerful medium. And then we spun that medium into all this work for NASA for 12 years, using virtual worlds to model the surface of Mars, for example, and a rover and how it would work, the rigid body dynamics of wheels driving and bulldozers on the moon and stuff like that. And how do we build moon bases? But we could use 3D graphics, you know, the serpent again, our ability to create these worlds to figure out how a vehicle would work on another planet before we built we built bent any metal. But it turns out coming back to the life propagation thing. If you go to the Curiosity rover or the two rovers on Mars and you pull, you take a screw gun if you were there, you know, hopefully the vehicles are dead so you're not caught on camera, but you, you drop the belly pan off of them. Inside there's a dozen species of bacteria that are just there for the ride. They're inside the vehicles. They can't be knocked out in any clean room and they're, they're dry, but they're alive. So there's life on Mars. It just happens to be in the bodies of 
our spacecraft. So there's no way avoid to avoid that? Really no way. There's no way to... And there's certain species of bacteria that will always be present? And in fact, the JPL vacuum chamber, and where they do the final prep for some of these missions, they found that because they had created the vacuum chamber and the clean rooms, certain types of bacteria evolved to be good at living in those. So they're already good at hitching a ride. So of course they're inside the vehicle and they're on Mars. Now outside of the vehicle, there's radiation and stuff that make it impossible for them to really spread and get into soils and stuff. Well, there was a, um, a fascinating um, podcast from Radio Lab about the Galapagos Islands and about um, how many invasive species have found their way into mm. the Galapagos, even from just the heels of people's feet, mm. um, having seeds ground into their the pattern of their shoes, mm. and that sometimes these seeds will get into these grounds, and then these invasive species will start growing. And, and this is Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, life will find a way out, you know, yeah. something like that. What they were trying to say is that there really is no clean. Like, There's no clean. And this idea that you're not going to... That a, a human being entering into some particular environment is going to not leave a footprint. Like it's not, it's not happening. Yeah, they, like if, uh, just by virtue of you being there, your bacteria, your diseases. And we're carrying around, you know, single-celled organisms, bacteria to help us digest food and stuff. And that the, the body load of that stuff outnumbers the number of humans have mm-hmm. ever lived. Right. You know, it's we're just uh, <clears throat> in some sense. Here's a joke for you. So we come, we rise. We don't do the deed. We don't create life off the planet. We just sort of go away. Planet goes on, runs down. Five billion years from now, the sun is a is a red giant and it's expanding. And and we come. The Earth comes and it scrapes the outer corona and it starts breaking apart because that's probably what will happen. And the crust comes apart. Now, of course, we know that bacteria can survive in all these crustal rocks and maybe travel to other solar systems. But my prediction is the surface bacteria will say, hey, guys, and the ones that are five kilometers down or three miles down said, hey, guys, listen, around a billion years ago or 600 million years ago, there was all this surface gigantic plants and whales and dinosaurs and stuff. And there was one species that did technology and they even took it out a little bit. And then they just blew it and went away. And the five kilometer deep uh, bacteria will say, you're kidding. That was going on. No one told us, you know, that <laughs> that all was happening on the surface. We're we're used to just being bacteria on planets that never go any further than just the bacteria phase. Well, the primary idea about how life gets moved around about the galaxy is asteroidal impacts, right? Like the, the idea of panspermia, like that much of what is life-sustaining exists on asteroids like well, amino acids and water and it was it was a theory put forth i think in the 70s first it was initially sort of panned but when now we're discovering meteorites that have come from mars and landed on ice caps on earth and go in and realize no it's quite possible that things hitched a ride and that mars would have cooled sooner had a liquid ocean sort of more stable environment sooner than earth would have so if life arose on mars and got some impacts and blew off some crustal material, then we could be all Martians. Yeah. Yeah, you that know? was the idea, right? Well, if, if that's the case, I mean, 
isn't the rover just a, a, a very microscopic form of that? I mean, it's not an asteroid, but it is a plant, a, a something mm-hmm. that came from one body mm-hmm. and is mm-hmm. now occupying mm-hmm. another body, and it has life on it. So here's the other part of the story. So perhaps, and this is all woo-woo, but the uh, the bacteria in the Mars rovers are communicating with the Mars bacteria and saying, listen, you know, we got life started on the Earth. We went up to a certain point where we had trilobites and we had deep swimming things, and they weren't really evolving, so we ordered an airstrike, knocked them back, and then we got things on land that crawled, but they just basically all they did was eat and shit, you know, and they got big and whatever, but they weren't going anywhere. So we ordered another airstrike, kill off the dinosaurs, and now we've got this new thing, these primate things, but we don't know if they're really going to go anywhere, so we just might order one more airstrike and start with arachnids. Let's let's do spiders the next time. We gotta we gotta find one that's going to do the job of getting life spread. You know. So you think that that's where our primary objective is to get off this planet and to spread life throughout the galaxy? I think that life life is so powerful. I mean, life it it pushes into new environments. You know, it went from. Uh, early thermal springs on volcanic islands, and it figured out, this is the work I'm doing with my colleagues at UC Santa Cruz and NASA and elsewhere, is to try to figure out a model of how life started in those volcanic springs in those early... Uh, we've come up with a model. We've just actually submitted our, our paper this week on that model. But life pushes its way in. Life had to learn in that model to, to survive in the oceans, and then it could spread in these little bubbles that are like pre-early you know early life really fragile and don't have much of a genome, but they can persist long enough they can get to the next island. You know, life will find a way, like Jeff Goldblum said. But look at where life has gone. I mean, it's incredible. As you say, if we are the spreading wings of the living system, we're a magnificent creation of that. I mean, we're, we have the potential to spread life everywhere. And one of the other projects I'm working on is asteroid capture and retrieval. Now, if you want to hear about that. Yeah, that, sure. That's a mechanism to actually spread life in a large scale, you know, even though it's indirect. So, you know, nobody's going to fund a project to spread life into the solar system. We're not so visionary. You know, we're pretty pedestrian and we, have, we do things for business reasons or whatever. So there's this whole new space movement that's come up. You know, SpaceX, Elon Musk, all these private entrepreneurs they're proposing how to get to Mars and stuff, right? NASA's still in the game, even though they can't launch people. You know, they're going to be using SpaceX in a few years. So NASA's put out this call for, well, let's see, what can we do with the human crew? Well, we can, uh, back in 2007, when they were going to shut down the shuttle program that was on the books, I worked with a team that worked with headquarters to design what's possibly the very first, you know, we can even bring up that video, how to get people to an asteroid, how mm-hmm. to land a human crew using the hardware that NASA wanted to build, which was called Constellation at the time. And it turns out it's a tricky thing, you know. Uh, who is it, the movie, the Deep Impact movie uh, you mentioned? It was Bruce right? Willis, he had one, and the other one was Morgan Freeman. There was there was two. There was uh, Deep Impact, Impact and, and then there was Armageddon. Uh, Armageddon. Yeah. Armageddon. So... What we said is, you know, that's all well and good, but how do you really do it? And it turns out that an asteroid, even that's a half a mile long, has almost no gravity. So you're not, you're not actually going to 
Is this your video that this is it. Jamie's put up here? Jamie has put it up. So it has almost no gravity. So no it's gravity. very difficult to land on. So that's a really big object, but And it's going what, like forty five thousand miles an hour or something yep, like that? Yeah, and it's rotating and it's you know So it's spinning it's, and it's moving. And it's moving. So here's our craft coming. So it's like a down. football. It's like a football. We call it like a space potato. So here we're coming down, and we're using our radar to try to find a spot that might not be so crumbly, because these are often rubble piles. And this is going to be people are going to land so on this is So this is a human mission. So let's see the ring of airbags that allows a soft contact. The vehicle's under thrust, and it's, watch this. Here comes uh, penetrometers coming out. This is what our, is a penetrometer? It's like a boom, penetrates on the edge of, edge of a rope. And the penetrometers are to try to grapple the surface. So you've got tension. If you've got tension on three or four of your lines, like a rock climber, you can, you've got stability. So and it actually digs into the surface digs to hold into it in the surface place. like an anchor. And here are the guys coming out. Notice they're floating. They're coming out on handrails. They've got a nice earth flag there they're saluting. This is our design from 2007, which was done for a NASA headquarters study for the administrator, actually. And... Uh, Anyway, so that was done. Uh, I unembargoed it. So it was so controversial at the time because the whole Bush agenda was to go back to the moon. And this was like another target. And I thought, you know, we need to go somewhere else. If, if human beings are going to ever go to Mars, why don't we go to an asteroid? You know, this, is, this was running around the community. There's sort of an asteroid underground. And, you know, our center director was one of those dudes. And I was sitting in his office, and he's a two-star general. He said, well, you can... You can go public with it because you can't get fired. You know, you're not a civil servant. So I did. So I lined up Space.com and CNET and, you know, Popular Science was on the cover of Popular Science. And we put that out. We said, here's our study. Here's how we grapple. You know, we dock with an asteroid and we get a human crew, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of goes into a black hole because, you know, NASA sort of got that kind of institutional thing where they do a lot of studies. But we had done it in public and it actually shaped, it pushed the space industry. Because I forgot about it. It was 2007. I said, oh, you know, it's out there. If you Google humans on an asteroid, it'll come up. But it turns out people were watching that and looking at that. We just put it out there. And a guy at, I think it was JPL, saw that back in the day. And then he designed the next mission. He's sort of an outsider. He's a student at the time. And he said, wow. This is really cool. We should be doing it as an agency. And he came up with, couldn't we bring an asteroid closer to the Earth so the crew doesn't have to go so far? Wait, what? Like pull it closer pull, to pull Earth? Pull it closer that to Earth. That sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. Small one. Small and disaster or a small asteroid? Small asteroid. But you can land on it. You could, you could go and sample it like a geologist with your hammers. How big are you talking about when you say small? Oh, uh, Literally pretty small, between like 12 feet and 30 feet long. And you could land on something 30 feet long? You couldn't land on that. You couldn't do what we just saw. Right. But the human crew could park. Do Next to it. What's called proximity ops. Yeah, it could park way downstream, turn off its hydrazine jets, and send astronauts over to, to sample it. But how do, you, how do you move something like that, say, to the orbit of the moon, which would be a safer place? Put a moon around the moon. So NASA had initiated that challenge based on this work, which bounced off this, this guy who said, we need to bring an asteroid to the moon, and they, now they have that as a direction. So a colleague in my, uh, uh, and, and me designed a whole system to do that. A system to put an a asteroid in orbit 
around, around the, moon. the moon. And here's the neat thing about it. We figure here's here's the problem. You go out to one of these asteroids, it's a rubble pile. Most most of the ones that we're really interested in for science, right? For sampling, they're five billion years old, they're four billion years old. They're collected rubble piles of pieces of the early solar system. So they're they're fragile. And why do we know this? The asteroid that came in over Russia, the asteroid that came in over Africa last year broke up at a certain altitude. So we know what pressure it took to break it up. So we know how much you got to push it to break the thing up because the atmosphere did that and then it comes in in pieces and rains down. But isn't the concern that you can't predict what happens when you break them up and then you might deal with a bunch of giant rocks hurtling towards Earth? Yeah, and that's why it's really hard to do asteroid deflection by some kind of explosive and you really don't right. want to ever do that. They want to just be able to push it or put some kind of a webbing on it Grab, that changes the, uh, but if, if you the put drag, a, right? If you put a webbing on it, they may just come apart. Right. Um, you you can use something called gravity tractoring, which is developed by Rusty Schweikart and Ed Liu, at the, you know, and a separate separate work that we were doing with them. The, this idea of flying a spacecraft alongside something and gradually, the gravity will change the orbit. What is the purpose of going to an asteroid, though, or especially a human mission? Like, what would be the benefit of having people go as opposed to having some remote? vehicle because it seems like as we get better and better with remote technology it would be like a lot more efficient it would save lives mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and well here's here's the we we were asking that same question so initially nasa said we want to do science we want to take samples off of something that's as old as the earth or older because then for origin of life research which i'm involved in i get i could get a few pounds of this material out from under this space crust that's on it, that has protected it for five billion years or four billion years, that material's precious because it was what was raining down in the skies of the early Earth that was coming down to the little ponds where life may have started. It's like it's been in a refrigerator all this time. Right. So it's really precious for science and figuring out how the solar system came together. So our design was to go out to the, to the asteroid up to a thousand tons. They're all rotating. They, they, they spin one time a minute, something like that, half a rotation a minute. Put a balloon around it. Just extend this air beam. I don't know if you've ever done any helium balloon, mm -hmm. like high altitude flight. There's, no, I haven't. Oh, they're incredible. I mean, uh, Julian Knott lives out in Santa Barbara. is perhaps the greatest designer of these kind of balloons. And he's on our, our team for this proposal. And he said, look, what you do is you... You extend these air beams, you know, like the, the balloons you have at circuses, the guy just like blows up a long balloon and makes a dog out of it for your kid, right? Mm -hmm. Air beams, they're the rigid parts. So you literally go out to the asteroid using xenon gas, you fill these air beams and they pull your fabric out, you know, and there's a there's a folder of a bunch of images of this and called Shepard. Yeah, I got it. And, and it will capture the asteroid. Here, it's kind of come out. There we go. You can see that it's hard to. So, so this is a balloon. This is literally a balloon. It captures the asteroid. So the asteroid is now inside it, and it's tumbling. Uh huh. It's rotating, and there's the air beams, those blue things. This is how the capture works, and here's the air flow. We may leave it on that one, and we'll, we can explain what we're doing. It turns out that if you inject gas into this balloon, mm -hmm. you will gradually slow the tumbling of the asteroid to stop it. Now it's stopped. They've solved one of the big problems of capturing asteroids is to get rid of this spin and tumbling. 
Because if you can't, there's all these powerful forces. If you, if you tried to put a net around that, it would just come apart or tear your spacecraft to pieces. Okay, so you put a bubble on it, you capture an asteroid, now what? Now what? As you'll notice in our little drawing there, we start shooting waves of xenon gas at the back end of it, which puts a force on it. Not much of a force to break it up, but enough force to shove it. And then we use the same xenon gas in our motor to, to keep up with it as it moves. And we can use like sail power. This is like a sailing ship. We can use sail power, moving gas, to change its orbit and to retrieve it and bring it, move it into some other part of the solar system. Is this potential technology to avoid gigantic asteroidal impacts on Earth, or is it just too small? This is too small. So this, this, so this was, is only for examining old rocks. For examining old rocks. But it turns out that when we were investigating this further, we thought, wait a minute. What if we had a piece of a comet, you know, Comets are coming in the, the Pleiades meteor shower and the Leonids that come in and they give you this nice light show in the summer. That's all valuable volatiles. Mm -hmm. That's water, that's methane, all this wonderful stuff. What if you had a chunk of a comet that had all this, these gases coming off? You know, the Rosetta mission the Europeans are doing right now, they're mm -hmm. orbiting one of these gigantic comets that has these geysers coming out. That's thrust. That's like a rocket thrust. What if you could capture a small comet from further out, put your balloon around it, capture, stop it rotating, capture all the stuff coming off, and use it for your engine? You could then create a moving chunk of the early solar system. Okay, outside of what if we did this and what if we did that and you know, being able to do it would be cool and everything like that, what would be the benefit of getting some 5 billion year old rock out of space? Well, here's and, and again, why would you want to do it with people? Why wouldn't you want to do it remotely with machines? Well, here's where the people come in. Okay. So if you can move a, a, a basically a wet space rock, capture all the gases coming out of it, concentrate the gases in your tanks, a human crew can dock with it, say you move it to Mars, move uh -huh. it to Mars orbit, move it to the lunar orbit. Now you've got a gas station in orbit. You've got a gas station somewhere in the solar system mm -hmm. full exactly the material you need to get a human crew they dock with it when they get there they refill their tanks they now have their return fuel to go back to earth and then they fuel their lander and they go down where they don't have to carry that stuff you have gas stations you have a sustainable space flight system uh, that sounds beautiful but if you don't send people out there you don't need that mm -hmm. so you're saying we would do this because when the people were out there, that way we'd have power. But mm -hmm. if you don't need people out there, mm -hmm. you don't need this power. And what would be the benefit of having these people out there other than the fact that you could do it? Um, I think because we're, you know, we're an exploring species. We're eventually going to want to do it. Right, but wouldn't, aren't we exploring remotely with the rover? Aren't we exploring remotely mm -hmm. with Voyager? We, yep. We're still exploring. We're still exploring. But, like, the proposition of going to Mars is so unbelievably unattractive to me. Mm. Like, when I hear that 100,000 people signed up for Mars, mm. I'm like, well, there's 100,000 people that would just drink Drano. Those are 100,000 people that would dive into a volcano if you right. put a camera on them. Right, right. I mean, what the fuck are they doing? Why do it's they want to go to Mars? It's the shittiest neighborhood ever on Earth. Imagine going to some unbelievably un un 
unpopulated, inhospitable environment on Earth? Would you go there? Would you go to some place where you're like sleeping on the edge of a volcano, breathing cosmic gases mm -hmm. through a fucking giant mask mm -hmm. because you, you, you can't breathe the air. You have to have this, some air tanks and you have all this gear just to keep you alive. You'd be like, fuck no. Why would I do that? When I could live in Hawaii. Right. Why right. would I do that when I can be in San Diego? You right, wouldn't, right? Right, so right. Why would you go to fucking Mars? It, except that there are some people, <laughs> there are some crazy people that really want to see this new shit. The people that pay the, two, right. the $20 million to go to the space station, there's gonna, they're going to be paying $50 million at some point to go around the moon. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you talk to the people who went to Is that what it's going to cost per person? $50 million? Is that the I've idea? I've heard it thrown around, but... Only rich assholes are going to be able to afford going around the moon then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like... In the days of great exploration, I mean, rich assholes funded Darwin's. Is it going to be like cell phones where it starts off with rich assholes, mm -hmm. like Michael Douglas on Wall Street with the big brick with phone? The, yeah, that huge. And on then the, eventually. On the Miracle Mile show. You yeah, know, you right? go to third world countries and everybody has a cell phone. Exactly. Is it going to be like that? It's going to be like that. Is that true, though? Because it's very disturbing to me that people aren't more up in arms about the loss of the space shuttle and about the loss of right. lack of funding yeah, from was, NASA. That was crazy. It's so, it's, but that it's so crazy. confusing because every movie from when I was a kid or even television shows. Do you remember Space 1999? Yeah. That yep. was 1999. Right. We were living in space. Yep. yep. 1990 fucking nine. You yep. know? Yep. What happened? What, you know, how is it uh, 2014 and we don't even have an active space program? We don't, and because there's fundamental problems with the economics. Like, even SpaceX. So SpaceX, what they did, what Elon did down in El Segundo here, he said, okay, what we're going to do is make a low-cost launcher. We're going to have the same engines on the second stage as we have on the first stage. Not two freaking types of engines. With Lockheed Martin and Boeing's launchers, like, they're so complicated. Why? Because they're government contractors. They're going to bill a lot more money. They're going to overbill the government for a So you think that's launch. what it was? Oh, it's incredible. So, so it stifled innovation, the fact that they were always, getting money from the government. Yeah, because it's government contractors. So what the government did in the 1920s, when aviation was just starting out, they gave these contracts to these little fabric air companies to run postal mail. They invented air mail. And so they said, well, we'll create a new kind of mail called air mail for the post office. It doesn't go by horse and buggy or train or whatever. And these little companies got enough finance from that that they started running airmail around, and they became Continental Airlines and United Airlines, and all of them came out of that thing by moving it to private enterprise. So what NASA did, and it's great wisdom, sometimes it has great wisdom, it created a program in the 2000s, in the aughts, to do this. So you got SpaceX now, and you got Orbital Sciences, and at least, but what they're, they're not inventing much in the way of new tech. They're inventing a reliable low-cost launcher, just like the Soviets had in the 60s and still have, Proton, you know. Low-cost, made on an assembly line. You, you look at the Energomash factory in Russia that makes the Soviet boosters and, and how they make this the Soyuz craft. It's like Henry Ford's assembly line, low-cost, high reliability. You know, so we had lost that culture. And now it's coming back with the SpaceX's. But the economics are still really rotten. So it's coming back because of private funding in the Pri private sector. The private sector, and yeah. Because of competition. Because of competition and innovation coming from Silicon Valley and other brains than people who, you know, work for large aerospace companies. So it's kind of another example of bureaucracy and government sort of getting in the way of progress. Well, in this case, they got out of the way of progress and they said, well, we're mm. losing the shuttle anyway. We'll create this small program 
relatively small where we'll fund the winners of the competition. So somebody, mm. it was kind of like the X Prize, right? This right. idea of challenges and prizes and the DARPA prize, and that's created a huge amount of innovation. That's really worked. That's been a government thing that worked because they said, well, uh, cured a new astronaut glove or a self-driving you know, robot that can track the edge of the highway. But so much military, uh, like, technology came out of the Apollo missions. I mean, so so much uh, from the space race between us versus the Soviets, so much innovation came out of oh, it. And huge. so much of it was, was very valuable as very far valuable. as military. Mm -hmm. I don't just understand why that didn't continue. It seems like that would be a no-brainer. Like, that would be a very important part of what the military would want. And who gets more money than the military? The military and gets ungodly sums of cash. They get ungodly. And they, they're really, really inefficient at delivering programs, right? They, right? they have a high cancel rate. And when they cancel a program, it's $100 billion of loss. But they seem like they've just stopped. And, and what the military has done, what the DOD has done, is the same thing NASA is doing. The public sector, chip manufacturers, everything from laptops to whatever, are so much more advanced than what the Pentagon or NASA can make that they just use off-the-shelf. It's called COTS, commercial off-the-shelf. And so they're not innovating. They're just using laptops, you know, and they're right. using standard stuff they're getting from industry because industry is so far ahead. Right. Back in the 50s, they were ahead. Right. In the 60s, now industry is so freaking far ahead, like mm -hmm. Tesla's batteries. I mean, who can... Nobody's going to create something as superior as that. Right. You know, or not any time in the near future. Not in the future. Yeah, everyone's going to buy those standard parts. Do you think that there is a way that we can kind of get back on track because of the private sector being involved in space travel and we can really start seeing manned space travel? Mm -hmm. to like we, we really can, we can sort of like make up for that hiccup mm -hmm. where we thought we would be... Where the in shuttle would be reusable and it would only cost fifty million. Each like, what time. was the original movie Alien? What year was that based in? Oh God, was it eighty-two? No, 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 seventy-nine. I mean, yeah, it was seventy-nine. 79. But what was it based on? It was based on not that far in the future. Right, right. It was based on like two thousand twenty or something goofy like that. Yeah, right, it was wasn't goofy. it? And you know, um, Blade Runner was supposed to be like two thousand nineteen. Los yeah. Angeles raining and yeah, you know cyborgs and stuff yeah you yeah, know we're well isn't that still possible i mean what we were talking about before about the creation of artificial life and the exponential growth of technology if you factor in all those things it might not be 2019 but it might be 2029 i mean they very well may have artificial life that's indistinguishable from you or i mm -hmm. in another two or three decades that's that's very possible right no no it's no, not it's really not uh, i've spent at least 10 years trying to figure out why technology and biology are counterposed systems. Why one doesn't do the other very well. So, for example, um, I, I do a talk now and then at the Singularity University. I haven't been there for a couple of years, but my talk is why the idea of a singularity is really not possible. And I can show not it. possible, not possible with technology we have now. Yeah, but what does that mean? I mean, when you say not possible, if things continue to go along the same exponential rate of progress, right? If it continues to go, it it sort of I mean has to reach some sort of an endpoint, right? I mean, it has to well, continue to innovate, Terrence, continue to grow as long as we have the physical materials, right? Terence thought that. You know, Terence read a lot of science articles and uh -huh. popular science journals and. I remember sitting with him in his house in Hawaii, you know, up half the night, trying to, to uh, explain to Terrence why this idea was not feasible. 
Why is that? Well, Terrence, you know, you, you see, you know, we just done a whole virtual world thing. I said, Terrence, the virtual world that we just were in is just, it's a, it's a, a cardboard cutout. There's nothing in it. It's just polygons rendered in a scene by a serial processor that's getting bits from a server, mm -hmm. and it's all extremely fragile. It looks realistic to us, but it's a complete cardboard cutout. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, here's, if you look down from Terrence's house down to Captain Cook, and you looked at the Pacific Ocean, I said, you take a glass full of water from that ocean, and what the heck is going on in that glass full of water in computational terms is just mind-blowing. It's a computational superpower. And in fact, that glass of water could not be simulated accurately by all the computers we've ever built, all running at once. Not today, but couldn't it be a thousand years from now? Isn't that possible? possible? We continue to stay alive, and innovation continues to push the boundaries of what's possible as far as computing. I mean, you can only imagine what's what we're capable of a hundred years from now. But the thing is, we're building what we're building... Say, for instance, the steam engine, right? Mm -hmm. The steam engine was large uh, bore diameter pistons, right? right? Starting in the 1820s and whatnot. They got smaller and smaller and better and better. So we got motors, we got locomotives, <laughs> and we got gasoline, right? But the, the piston and camshaft model is still what drives your Tesla. Uh -huh. Well, maybe not because it doesn't have pistons in it. Right. No, that's an electric motor. It's but a completely it's, different thing, right? It, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It got miniaturized. It got better and better. But it was stuck in a rigid framework of what its limitations were. Computers are also stuck in that framework. So, for example, John von Neumann, when he designed the von Neumann machine in, at, in Princeton in 1948-49, and they built this first really reliable, no-patch cord, lots of registers and memory mm -hmm. and vacuum tubes and drums and shit. They got it all working by 1952, and then they gave the plans away. Well... Von Neumann, the, the creator of this, wrote, this is a contingency architecture. This is just to get something to actually work and not break down in 20 minutes and do something. But it is in no way a strong architecture, especially when it comes to dealing with natural systems. But, but haven't they overcome a lot of that, at least in theory, with quantum computing? That's, that's all. Um, I, I'm not sold on that at all. I think that those are extremely specialized very, very small processes that we don't really even understand what's going on. But doesn't it open up the potential? I mean, if you go back to the invention of the steam engine and you compare it with a Tesla mm -hmm. and you look at the X amount of hundred of years plus uh, of, of innovation that led to this incredible leap in technology, mm -hmm. wouldn't you just extrapolate and say, like, what we have today? You can't possibly say that, like, flash drives and three gigabyte processors is the end-all, be-all. If we can't do it with that, we're never going to be able to do but it. But isn't it true that perhaps in the year 2050, there will be a computer with a serial processor, maybe lots of, like it might have a thousand CPUs or more, but it's still doing the same thing. Why? Because it's tied to legacy. Well, why does it have to be? It why does to, it have to be? Well, why does it have to be doing the same thing that it's doing now? If quantum computing really does turn out to pan out. Because it has to run Microsoft Word. But why does it have to run Microsoft Word? <laughs> because those are the forces that are driving the but, evolution. Uh, sort of, but I mean, like, look, Microsoft Word today has almost no relation to Microsoft Word of Windows 95. I mean, it's barely connectable. It's actually uh, slower. <laughs> it's, well, it does a lot more, though, right? It does more of it. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, find, you know, bloatware. I, bloatware. So in, in, I've got a 1990 
uh, first 386 uh, computer running Windows 3.1 in the Digibarn. My friend Chris McGuire had one of those. He uh, kept that shit deep into the 90s, man. Deep into the 90s. Why? He had it in like 97, 98 he kept that. Oh my God, Windows 3.1. <laughs> I booted this up the other day. It comes up, bam. It's so fast. Mm-hmm. I'm running Word. I'm running everything. I'm doing email in AOL. Like so quick, and then right. I go. Then I go to my my modern machine, which is ten thousand times more powerful. And it's like, oh my god, another processor glitch has happened, and the the wheel of of laconic process is happening. Windows are painting slowly because there's this bloat layer upon layer upon layer of crap. Wait, you really have that much of a heart. What what do you run? Are you want Windows running, or Unix or what do you run? It's ridiculous. I mean, I'm I'm running uh, VMs. Like I run different virtual machines. Virtual so you, machines. you run like Windows on top of a Mac platform, on top of a that Mac kind of a platform. thing. Platform, and right. I have tweaked, and I go into all these forums, and it's like, oh, you know, Windows Seven, not on a VM, has all these incredible problems with a search indexer. With you got to stop this because it'll totally choke the operating system. You got to stop that. You got to do this. So you have to. It's like an automobile in 1910, where you had to be a mechanic to keep it working. Efficiently, this stuff is so bad. But you're running some really complicated stuff, though. If you're running virtual machines, well, I'm you're running. running a, you're essentially running a hard. You're running an operating system. Then you're running another operating system on your operating system mm-hmm. that's operating simultaneously. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of resources. But it's using the same hardware, right? But what it exposes is the the incredibly how incredibly poor we are as a species at writing software that's good and it stays stable. So this is just just super duper complex. I mean, I don't have a problem with things crashing. I mean, if you compare it to like what Windows ninety five used to be like, mm-hmm. Windows ninety five used to get that my, blue screen to death all the time. And my my favorite story uh, is if we're halfway between Earth and the stars, you know, like we're halfway to Alpha Centauri, and the the, the three thousand crew are in their deep sleep, and suddenly they're all woken up. They're getting out of their vessels, and they go and they they look at the screens on the bridge, and they're all blue, and it says. Press Control Alt and Delete. You will lose all data. <coughs> and we realized we were running DOS underneath all of this technology, layer upon layer. You know they'll all be doomed. You know. I, I'm really confused about your your idea because you you seem to think that things were better off when they were like really clunky and they couldn't run as well, much for, software for, and the software wasn't as complex. For example, Windows XP. Mm-hmm. Like when they discontinued support of XP. Oh my God! And you found out there were millions and millions and companies that were just totally dependent on it, saying this is so robust, this is so such good software. And since XP, they, of course, they went to you know Vista, which was a disaster, and Windows Seven was sort of a recovery, and then Windows Eight was sort of a disaster. And now, of course, the, the evolution of Mac OS is maybe a little different. It's, it's fantastic. Maybe, it's fantastic. Mac OS is so much better than it ever was back in the you know mm-hmm. yeah. the, the 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 days the pre Intel days. Yeah, the before Rhapsody and before Mac mm-hmm. and and Unix. Yeah, it was it was just a kludge. You know, the Mac OS didn't have primp to multitasking. Right. No memory protection. No memory protection. All that stuff. I stayed away from Macs until the Unix got onto the yeah platform. the ten when ten came along. That's when, when a lot ten of people came joined. along. But if you look at how can we be so bad and we're spending the maximum amount of cash and only one or two companies and one or two OS efforts make something that's good, right. we're not really good at software, actually. You're, you're talking crazy. This is, you're, you're like an extreme pessimistic attitude towards I've grown innovation. Up, I've grown up in the software business. And, well, you know, 
seeing how things actually get done. Mm -hmm. And then you, you meet a futurist or a popularizer who comes up with this wild thing and you say, no one's working on the project for one. You know, there's no investment going into, say, putting consciousness in computers. And does that, I, I always ask the question, do wait, those... Wait, wait, putting consciousness into computers, we're talking about a completely different thing now. Yeah, that's... You're talking about software development first. And you, yeah, you cited, well, soft, software writing, creating, you cited one excellent operating system, Mac OS, which exists right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we are, we, you say no one is writing it, but it's there. I mean, I'm on it's it right there, now. It's fantastic. But, it, but it's doing stuff... Uh, that has been done for 35 years in different operating systems in different ways. But that's one of the big things that happened when the transfer to OS X came, is that there was this mm -hmm. big, you had to get rid of all the old software, because all the legacy software was no longer useful. You couldn't use it, because mm -hmm. it was running on a completely different platform. So that right there sort of contradicts your idea, doesn't it? But the thing is, if you talk to somebody, say in 1990, right, uh, well, uh, you know, where will software evolution be in 2015? They probably right. would, just like you're disappointed with the space program, right? It's disappointing in the software business. Is this, the software business is grinding away. This is what Jaron Lanier talks about. He, he wrote this thing called Half a Manifesto about 10 years ago, which is like, we are so burdened by legacy and poor, poor practices that we just add, we're building like a tower of Babel. Sometimes it works well. Sometimes doesn't, but we add layer upon layer upon layer without thinking. So we're not building great pyramids at Kisa. We're building some kind of a tower of babble of technology that's really patchwork together. Maybe you just know more about it than I do, because when I look at it objectively as someone who's not involved in the industry, all I'm seeing is continual innovation. All mm -hmm. I'm seeing is things getting better, crisper, move better, boot up faster, well, when crash we went, less. I agree with you on that. When we went to, say, the iPad and mobile devices, uh -huh. they could throw away all that legacy. Just say, just right. throw it. No more in, compact disks. Yeah, throw it in the right. trash. No more file Floppy systems and, and, and layer. And then we'll build a brand new operating system running on flash memory and get rid of the crap. And we'll even have new ways to do applications. When that happened, mm -hmm. it was like a huge breath of fresh air. It was like... Oh, there isn't 500,000 features to my mail program. It just does mail. And mm -hmm. we maybe dumbed it down. We made it super simple to get away from our natural tendency to... So the space station's a good example. Like, space station's so complicated, right? It has it's 15 nations or 13 nations. There's 150 kinds of connectors on it, right? It is designed to be remotely run without any crew. That was one of the initial design criteria that we should be able to completely remotely run the space station. So it has laptops and ancient computers and huge num millions of lines of code to run the space station. So it's a huge cost. It's a huge burden to keep that thing running. Go back to Skylab. You know, you're old enough to probably remember mm -hmm. Skylab was a tin can, which was an upper stage of a Saturn V, the beautiful Saturn V, most reliable booster in history thrown away. So one of the last ones, they launched the upper stage as a tin can, space station, solar panels, uh, super simple, huge interior space. Guys could run around it. Remember how they could run? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a beautiful model of a space station that didn't require more than 30% of crew time to sort of keep maintenance going. On the International Space Station, the crew are, are overwhelmed with maintenance chores. It's so complicated. So we built right. something... And I asked a friend at NASA, I said, what if you put boosters on the space station and send it, tried to send it to Mars to carry a crew? He said, they'd be dead in a month because 
we're constantly having to send up parts and repair shit that's breaking is not a sustainable platform currently without, currently without a huge amount of maintenance and resupply and constant management right but i'm, I'm like an confused by your your pessimism though because it seems to me that if you like want to like nitpick and focus on this blip in time mm -hmm. this one blip in time where there may be peaks and valleys in innovation ultimately it seems to be sort of inexorably moving towards progress mm -hmm. or moving towards complexity mm -hmm. right would mm -hmm. you agree with that but the progress, say, toward uh, having something as good as biology, how biology operates, operating in technology, is a big challenge. Yeah. Technology is just, I mean, the biology of a cell and how a cell metabolizes mm -hmm. products, how it manages its energy, it has its feedback. You know, a cell is like a huge cityscape right. working. It works 99.999% of the time, otherwise you'd be just mush flowing on the ground. Right, but isn't, aren't we talking about biological processes, like pro the, processing proteins and things along and those lines? And yeah, exactly. That won't necessarily be necessary if you have something artificial, silicon-based, something that's running on electricity and technology and lithium-ion batteries here, and what have you. Here's the problem. It's based on too weak of a model of physics. In what, how, in what way? So here's, and here's, the, here's the metaphor that I use. And this is why computer people hate this idea. Life. What, what idea? The idea that life is based on probabilistic events. So here's, here's how you digest sugar. Say you, you take a nice big bolus of sugar into your body. Um, you know, the, the sugar molecule will come into your cell at some point, somewhere. It will hit this molecular storm of shit going on, mostly water molecules. It will ricochet around the cell, hitting just about every other molecule that it can in the cell for a second, second and a half, two seconds, until it hits, it hits exactly the right place on an, a, a molecule that has a pocket that the sugar fits in perfectly, and that thing will cause it to bend and go click, click, and make it into a polysaccharide, which is an important, valuable thing. But it's all done through this, what's known as a probabilistic stochastic process. It's completely nuts. Mm -hmm. But that's how nature is. And so when you compare that process to the way a computer would work, so a computer designer would say, well, I'm, that's dumb. That's a whole lot of wasted you know, steps in computation. I'll just build a, a assembly line. We'll take that sugar in and along the assembly line and we'll hit my thing and we'll digest it immediately. Well, it turns out if you do things like that, they're so rigid that they break almost immediately in in real world and nature. But this isn't this if you're imitating biological synthesis or biological life. And why would you do that if you're creating something artificial? All you need to do to create mm. a, a, an artificial person is have it behave, think, compute, react like a person. It mm -hmm. doesn't need to process proteins. I mean, these are all that's legacy. Well, Isn't that like being but tied what, to legacy? What do you throw away from what a person is? How do you define, say, consciousness? Or well, you, why, we... well, I don't think you would call it a person at all. Right. Why would you call it a person? Mm. I mean, not throwing it away. What I'm talking about is creating something completely unique. Mm -hmm. It well, wouldn't have to be a, a duplicate of a person. All it would have to do is look like one. Right. But then we're building cardboard simulacra again that really aren't the real thing. If you sent that person into the New York subway system, that ro robotic entity, it would be soon overwhelmed with stimulus and programs and Unless you programmed that, it for it. Well, unless, you pro unless you built 
human being 1.0 mm-hmm. and you found the flaws and then built 2.0 and found the flaws and keep going the same way we've described already with operating systems from 1995 a mere blip in time mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. 2014 and the massive amount of progress has been made since then if you did that with mm-hmm. computer generated or, or or electronically generated whatever you want to call it, artificial life forms that we've created I mean it just stands to reason give it enough time no asteroids no super volcanoes no right. Ebola right. humans are going to get there I think it's a harder problem than we can suppose, like Terrence right would say. It's, it's really hard because we don't understand how basic biology really functions. We don't understand, for example, well, here's another example. Uh, the neuron, you know, 10,000 connections and the body and the sodium channel and there's all these things that come out and, you know, uh, the neurotransmitters are generated into this pole and they carry the signal and everything. The neuron is so frickin' big. Uh, I, I do something called molecular dynamics simulation. Our team has done that, where you're just simulating a molecule's wiggling movement, right? And they're doing this now for protein folding, where they get 10,000 atoms all arranged in the right place in the simulation in the computer so that it behaves like a real protein would do, which is fold and do all this weird geometry. So they have to simulate the protein being slammed by water all the time. It's this crazy process. It might take those guys a month of computation on a computer of 10,000 processors to simulate a couple of nanoseconds of that action. Because otherwise, the, the simulated protein just doesn't behave like it really does in nature. You, it's that hard. Right. And so you, I, I think we're in agreement that replicating absolute biological processes mm-hmm. would be insanely difficult insanely and may difficult. take forever. But my question is, why is that necessary to create something new that can think for itself? Because here's the problem. If you created something very small, for example, not a human walking around the New York subway system, but something, where, what world does it live in? You know, it, words, it lives in a, if it's a robot, say it's a little insectoid robot, what world does it have to live in? What, I mean, you know, it's living in this world. What do you mean? Well, if it lives, say, on a factory floor, you know, a good okay. example, factory floor robots are really getting good. Like they can carry shit around. They can track spots on the floor. Right. And they can do all kinds of shit. But if they ever go out in the parking, if you put them out in the parking lot, you know, where they're out of their very controlled, they're in a virtual world when they're in a factory and they're, they see tape and marks and mm-hmm. barcodes and all kinds of things that create the mental model inside the robot. But if it goes into nature and the chaos of the natural world and vehicles moving around and stuff like that, you know, the DARPA Grand Challenge which is all these great teams making robots that are self-driving, they found out real fast that we're, you know, this is hard. This Currently. Is super hard. Currently, Currently hard. But, but, but isn't the new Tesla D, you could phone home with this thing, mm-hmm. and it'll literally drive to you. And I heard a rumor, by the way, and this is maybe a, a Google car, you know, self-driving Google car, that on the 880, um, there was a, a Google self-driving car scene that had an Irish setter sitting you're Behind a dog wheel. you're a dog owner right right it was sitting in the passenger seat there was no one else in it and it, the cops were told about this people were calling this 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 car this is irish setter is driving this car and the cops come up and there's an irish setter sitting in the seat and there's no one else and they follow it and it goes to a veterinarian's office and the door opens and the car, the dog really goes into the veterinarian office. And this is the, the rumor that I'd heard was somebody just didn't have time. 
they put the car, the dog in the car, and they send it to the vet's office, you know, which is totally in violation of, you know, any right. kind of... But, but doesn't, that story, doesn't that story itself disprove this notion that it's too difficult to do something like this when you're dealing with the real world mm -hmm. and all the variables and all the moving parts? I mean, you just talked about a dog right, driving right. a fucking car. I mean, that's kind of it right now, and this is only 2014. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in Wuppertal in Germany in the 19th century, they were doing uh, remote control uh, uh, trains. They were doing trains that would go on the track track to an electrical signal, stop, pick people up. I mean, this stuff is actually pretty easy. Okay. And But and, that's not, we're talking about a road, though. That's not a track. But they're, the difference between that and a living system is those are fixed function algorithms that are doing edge tracing on the edge of a highway, saying, mm -hmm. where's the right line and where's the yellow line? And they're getting a GPS signal. And if you look at the code, it's not very big. You know, if it was very big and complicated, it probably wouldn't work. So these Google engineers have made something pretty elegant that has fuzzy logic and everything. They've got it to work. This has been tried since the 1930s with the radio control cars that had radios on the front and back, the uh -huh. control of distance. And they've, they've got it to work. But is this anything close to what life can do? No. The adaptability of what life can no, do? No, but, but neither was the initial combustion engine, mm. even close to what the Saturn V rocket was. Mm -hmm. Like, neither was the original Model T in comparison to a Tesla. And I, I mean, doesn't that just stand to reason, the I, constant innovation? I agree with you, except that when I see really sci-fi things come in that are just... Because I'm an engineer, fundamentally. When I mm -hmm. see stuff that's like, oh my God, I can't even imagine how to get there. Because they're not even defining where their terms. Right. They're not defining their terms, and no one's working on the project. So I'll, I'll give you one example of how hard this stuff is. So Terrence and I would have these conversations about what he called novelty. You remember he used yeah. to say, concrescence into novelty. So, you know, Terrence left us in the year 2000, you know, saw the millennium, if you define it as the year 2000. People say it restarted 2001. But um, Terrence was talking about all this stuff, and I would say that's pretty obvious to myself that things get novel. How do they get novel? And for years and years, I worked on this project called the Evolution Grid. What we did was try to say, let's simulate actual chemistry inside the computer and see if we can see novelty accreting. And how does it do it? And in 2011, after running a year of simulations, partly at UC San Diego and up in my barn, if you can believe that, with old servers all wired together, we found this staircasing formula that was a way that nature forms structures, in this case, bonds form between these virtual molecules, and doesn't break them. They don't just all go back to mush. And it was this staircasing thing. I said, oh my God, you know, this took eight months of computation to find this method by which Perhaps the universe accretes novelty and holds on to it. So I sort of did a virtual call to Terrence, and I said, we found the formula. I call it the cosmic wiggle. Now, he calls this stuff like the cosmic giggle. I don't know if you remember from mm -hmm. some of his talks. I said, we found the cosmic wiggle. But in the process of doing that, what I learned was, holy shit, the basis for life, which is this massive, huge engine of stochastic, probabilistic, 
storm that's going on that, that literally ratchets and rocks everything from jujitsu matches to the jet air, airplane is a powerful system. It's not at the basis of computing. Computing is this delicate little thing that like, we'll take a number and we'll do a thing with it and we'll spread it out here. But nature is this massive machine. So perhaps the future, and this is where we would come together, is a merger between computing and natural systems. So this is a project that I'm calling the Genesis Engine Project. And it's, it's having a computer control trillions of chemical experiments all going at once and looking at them, selecting them, and saying these are more powerful experiments. And it can do search through molecular space. I just talked to a guy from Google about this, and he was like, oh, molecular search, we're interested in that. We're not just limiting our searches to, you know, the best bread recipes. You know, mm -hmm. we would like to search in molecule space. And I talked to our neighbor, in, and we have a place in New Jersey, and he's like a head researcher at Glaxo, and he said, this is incredibly valuable. If you can, if you can actually use molecules to do the walking, run a trillion experiments at once and pick the best ones and then run a trillion more experiments and walk through chemical space, we can figure out how to make a pharmaceutical in the least amount of steps. You can simulate, you can create new materials and, and we'll have a hybrid digital and natural analog computer for the first time in this 21st century. Well, now you're really confusing me because now you you seem to think that innovation is going to reach some new plateau. If, if we do that, if we're able to hybridize, mm -hmm. I think we're going to make the, the leaps that you are talking about, Joe. If we can do this hybrid, if we can harness So where nature, does your pessimism lie? What do you... What do you uh... I'm an engineer, so I know what it takes to build these things. Uh-huh. And... So I don't want to really oversell that by a certain date we're going to have a singularity of some yeah, sort. Yeah, I think that certain date stuff is always a goof. It's a you know, goof. Ray Kurzweil wants to do it now with 2045 and the it's, 2045 it's moved initiative. Out to 2045. Yeah, I think they're being silly by doing that, and I think yeah. it's it's it it does the whole idea of of uh, exponential increase in technology. It does the, that whole idea a disservice by like pretending that anybody, first of all, nobody's ever fucking predicted anything. Right. Right. No. Nobody's ever nailed it. I mean, there's been some fascinating H.G. Wells predictions that sort of came true, but no one said like on November 19th, 1972, there's going to be a telephone that does this and, and it's never right. happened. It's never happened. Like that's what that December 21st, 2012 drove me fucking crazy. It drove me fucking crazy because first of all, it was in intoxicating and then it was maddening and then it became ridiculous and mm -hmm. as the day rolled around I, d I did an end of the world show you did. on December 21st <laughs> okay. 2012 with to go Doug to Stanhope that. and Joey Diaz and my friends Honey Honey this band and we did this show uh, we did it live at the Wiltern it's not uh, it doesn't it, it exist anywhere oh, you it was just a comedy show just that. a live show it was just a comedy show yeah we just thought the asteroid was going to hit or the mines were going to come back or the aliens were going to land or whatever the fuck was going to happen nothing happened of course well, you know I was in the uh, down underneath Grand Central station in new york city with a friend of mine who's a he's a kind of a psychedelic comic mm -hmm. and he does this what's his name oh god what's his name again what kind of a friend is this oh brain is fried he's an okay. absolutely wonderful guy um yeah, but we were just guy. we laughed name no one's gonna find him seven billion people in the planet. seven billion people <laughs> uh we laughed our way through the day like you guys were doing at the will turn uh -huh. we just told jokes and we said 
we got to get less serious. Well, it's you just know? this idea of picking a day is so goofy. Like I had Daniel Pinchbeck on the podcast once, and he was saying that it's definitely going to change the world. December, I go, do you know that December 21st, 2012, something's definitely mm-hmm. happening. It's absolutely definitely going to change the world. I was like, what are you talking about? No. no. What are you fucking, how can you say that? You can't right. say you that. You can't. You can't. You can never say that. You, you can, can never, never say, say a day. Well, here's, for, Joe, here's a real cool one for you. I have some of the last Terrence McKenna papers. You know, Terrence's archive was destroyed right. in a fire in 2007. Yeah, what happened there? That was uh, his, It was. he lives in a rainforest. How the fuck did a fire destroy everything? Um, after he died, the papers went to Esalen, where you just were mm-hmm. on the Big Sur coast. And they stored them at their in-town office in Monterey. And a a Quiznos sub shop, I kid you not, had some kind of electrical issue, burned a whole city block down and the Esalen office and Terrence's papers. Oh, my God. But didn't didn't his place in Hawaii burn too? No, no, it's still there. Oh, okay. Who owns that? You know, I don't know. I think it was sold recently. Jesus Christ, who bought that fucking thing? God damn, I would love to have that place. But in... So those archives were lost, and as soon as that happened, I I heard somebody called me, and I called Lorenzo, Lorenzo Haggard, your mm-hmm. dear friend. Love that dude. I love that dude. And I said, Lorenzo, the elves have removed the incriminating evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Again. That's hilarious. And we have to rebuild Terrence McKenna from extant material, so it's like a Grateful Dead show thing. Send in your cassettes. Well, his one of his <laughs> most problematic theories was that novelty theory, mm. that the idea mm-hmm. that December 21st, 2012, there was going to be some point of infinite novelty, and he thought mm-hmm. it was going to be a time machine, perhaps. and Based on the I Ching. And, yeah. Well, in, so I got a pack of papers in the mail that I came through another archivist because I'm also handling Timothy Leary's the the remnants of Timothy Leary's library right now Mm -hmm. that are you know we're trying to scan the news archive and whatever but this packet of materials 15 years of letters and there was a time wave zero edition you know in a little binder or whatever with Terrence's little writing on it and there was a post-it note that where Terrence has scribbled something and then at the bottom he says December 21st yes 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 on the bottom of this post-it note, 1989. And so I scanned that sucker in and put it online in December of 2012. Here is the nefarious post-it note where Terrence finally settled on this date, at least for Terrence, you know, Arguelas, so say Arguelas had been involved in this too. And of course, but it says it comes down to this post-it note. You know, (laughs) I wanted to put that up to sort of sow the absurdity of Mm -hmm. this is a guy that doesn't really... You know, Terrence wasn't a technologist, and, you know, he was a visionary thinker. We love him. I mean, he was an amazing dude. We love to listen to him, but I think you're right. I think he was off the rails on He put to too much into that, that much. one thing. And not only that, didn't he move the goalposts? Like, at one point mm-hmm. in time, it wasn't mm-hmm. December 21st. It was, like, November or something, mm-hmm. and he changed it. He changed it, and he was trying to fit the data to the curve, but he wasn't really an expert in trends in history and how can you match trends in history to anything anyway i would listen to him talk about that that's the one thing that i had to shut off Mm -hmm. i've listened to pretty much everything that he's ever done all the lorenzo archives all All the stuff that jan Irvin put up way back in the day listen to podcast 316 in the salon Mm -hmm. because that one we kind of take this thing apart Mm. and i've met with ralph abraham we meet you know once a year kind of thing. And in 2011, I was setting up to do a program called Terrence 2012 about the life of Terrence McKenna. 
And I met with Ralph and I said, tell me, Ralph, what was going on in the late 90s? Because, you know, they're the trilogue, Ralph mm-hmm. Rupert, who was just on your show, right? Ralph Abraham and Terrence. And Ralph said, we kind of were getting fed up because Terrence was just spinning these stories and we didn't think they had any, any basis. And so at the 1998 trilogues, you know, the trilogues where they all met and they talked together at mm-hmm. UC Santa Cruz, he said, if you listen to that, Rupert and I set a trap for Terrence. We trapped him over and over again. And we basically, for an hour, he was squirming and he was pretty up, you know, pretty uncomfortable. So I pulled out our cassette tape of that and we had digitized it. And sure and behold, and you'll hear this within Podcast 316. And what Rupert says, it's Terrence is talking about, you know, the internet will come to consciousness in 20 minutes or less, you know. It will be an AI that will no longer need us. And so Rupert was ready for that and said, Terrence, uh, I've heard, you know, Rupert's voice, you had him here, and I've heard 10 versions of this story. And in the last version, it was an AI coming out of a time portal, you know, because they're not going to let him get away with this. Right. And Terrence is such a good Irishman, right? He's such good on, you know, storytelling. Storytelling, and he's good with, and he says, and that too, <laughs> you know, like that's going to happen too. But at the end of that, it's very, very heartfelt and kind of because Terrence realizes his friends have kind of drawn a line in the sand. And the last thing he says in that trilogue is, well, we want prophets, but we don't want false prophets. Hmm. So, you know, I think it, the story was the thing at that point. So do you think that he just got carried away with it? Like, is it, I mean, obviously... He, like you and I, like everyone we know, is flawed, is a person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he also, part of the reason why he was this visionary, sort of out-of-the-box thinker, this guy who had this really mm-hmm. in- incredible way of describing potential possibilities, was that his mind was prone to going on these little weird journeys mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. took a lot of chances and maybe might have been married to a few of these chances mm-hmm. that maybe shouldn't have. Yeah, Dennis Dennis was in the introduction, I think, to the second version of Invisible Landscape. Dennis is writing, you know, this is what we went through when we were in our 20s, and mm-hmm. we've learned something since then. We don't really, you know, I don't believe this anymore. And, and you know, I think it, it's almost like, and this could happen to any of us, we get attached to story. Mm-hmm. It's our shtick. It's our comedy act. It's our thing we do. You know, it's our conspiracy theory. It's a thing that brings people into the seats. Mm-hmm. It fills the theaters. And if it's paying your bills and it gives you self-worth and whatnot, you can get really attached to that story. See, it's very unfortunate, you know, because the rest of Terrence's ideas were so fascinating, compelling, mm-hmm. and to listen to him talk about the positive benefits of psychedelics, what, what he thinks the potential that psychedelics hold, and what he thinks about psychedelic culture. And there's so much... Fascinating, absolutely mm-hmm. fascinating. Oh, I love him. Out I mean, of he, him. He was Terrence for me, I can tell you, and I only knew him the last couple of years. We didn't know he was on his way out, frankly. You know, we did this whole fantastic thing with we brought virtual worlds to his house in Hawaii off his satellite, his dish, and he was placed into a world and he became his own ghost. The avatar was fantastic, and I was looking forward to a long association with him. And we were planning to do an Esalen workshop where he and I could do pieces of the same puzzle like i could do like the deep tech and weird ideas and stuff but it was based on science and tech and some visionary thing and then he would come in from his history side and elusis and all that stuff and we were going to just go on the road and then he had a grand mal seizure two months later and 
was horrific. And we saw him last in September 99. It was like a goodbye event that was held. If he was around today, is there sufficient medical advances that would have helped him? You know, a glioblastoma multiforme, they're so rare. And they, they have a really bad prognosis. I mean, he had gamma knife surgery, and I think it was November. I mean, uh, Eric Davis's last interview, the interview Eric Davis is wonderful. From Hawaii, right? From, that, from yeah. Ho- actually, it might have been on the mainland. You hear a lot of dishes in the background. That wouldn't be the model for, he, he might have been in Occidental during that one after the surgery. But he's so beautifully cogent and coherent. I mean, he's, he's, he's a master. He's yeah. He's so in his heart. He's so brilliant, and you know he's on all these anti-seizure drugs and everything. One of the things he does say, which was, this, he said, "You need to rethink this thing, because I'm in altered spaces because I'm on massive medications because I have a brain disease, because and and there are people walking around that are certifiably in altered states, and and we shouldn't just privilege." You know, psychedelics, there are so many avenues uh, into alternate realities that allowed us to see the world, and I've just experienced them. And uh, that's part of what my mission in the world is to say, don't privilege these substances, because then they become crutches. You can, Terrence used to say, you can't do this on the Natch, you know, but I've since met a lot of people that are going to profound spaces through other means. Yeah, I think he was a bit... I think he was a little hasty in his uh, his proclamation that this is incapable, this is impossible under natural conditions. Because um, I have a friend who has had psychedelic experiences. He's not averse to it. He's a regular marijuana user, and he's also a kundalini expert. Mm-hmm. And he's become a kundalini expert since I've known him. Mm-hmm. So over the last 10 years, he's been practicing, I've known him for about 10 years, he's been practicing kundalini uh, very, very intensely over the past four or five. Wow. And since then, he says, he goes, I have deep DMT experiences mm. while doing kundalini, mm-hmm. and I have no reason to doubt him. I have another friend who does a different type of medication, some some sort of, uh, it's it's not kundalini, but some sort of, sort of meditation, and he also says that he's mm-hmm. like, I have legit, full-blown psychedelic experiences. Yeah, and I think... I'm I'm starting to research this, and I'm actually going to be working on a book on this thing because I keep running into these people, and I call it and you know we call it endogenous. Mm-hmm. So I'm using the term endo, endo beings or endo voyaging or whatever, using your own endogenous uh, ability because I do it. I, I mean, think it's, it's just unbelievably difficult to do, and I think uh, some people are just lazy. I think that's really a part of mm. it. It's also physical effort. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people that are investing a tremendous amount of time in thinking, calculation, postulating, but the physical effort of meditation is beyond them. And that's one of the things that McKenna talked about. Yeah. Terrence talked about all the time, how boring meditation mm-hmm. was. It's incredibly boring. I just had a flash insight, Joe. We're, to come back to the original theme that we're talking about, why did the ancients could do this amazing stuff that we're now discovering that's like incredibly high tech because they weren't distracted what could they do it's true no internet no twitter yeah not check their facebook every 10 minutes <laughs> they they could a guy could look at a pile of rocks and see the full structure of the pyramid in his in his head or her head mm. with water flows and they perhaps because they're not so distracted and their stimulus response cortisol being shot and and interrupts and, you know, to-do lists and whatnot, just massively distracted. 
those guys were using full power of this endogenous power. And maybe Eleusis was unlocking that. It's also possible that they didn't have the like predetermined limitations that we have when we consider like what normal states of consciousness exist. Mm. We have this idea. Mm. Well, this exists, and then if you want more than that, you got to take acid. If you want more than that, right. you got to get on Prozac. If you right. want more than this, you, you know you have to be drunk. You have to be this. You have to be that. Right. So we have these preconceived notions about uh, altered states of consciousness. Insight. Brilliant insight. And 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 we're so channeled and managed in uh, technologically driving, like driving here. I mean, we drove down the back of California from Santa Cruz. It's almost, some of the most beautiful landscape. Mm, amazing. And Galen and I are looking at this glowing light coming off the ocean, like what you saw at Big Sur. Mm -hmm. Those dudes, I mean, we get a little snatch of it, but we don't have the full experience. We're not standing on the shore, smelling the plants, in a full body of health, being impacted by those photons coming, giving us in enlightened states because we're driving mm -hmm. past it and we're watching our time and you know our gas levels and whatnot and we're out of tune we're not present i've talked about this many times on the podcast i had a really life-changing experience that had nothing to do with drugs and it was i went to uh the big island i went to the keck mm -hmm. observatory wow and um just went because i was on vacation with my family there and we went to the uh, there's two levels to the observatory. There's the main observatory, and then there's the visitors area. Mm. And the visitors area just have a bunch of telescopes set out. It's pretty cool, but th it's so high that it's above did, the clouds. Did you have a cloudy day, or it was a clear. It, it was, was a totally cl oh, well. It was cloudy man. below us, Boy. which was fascinating. We were bummed out. We we're like, oh man, we're gonna hit clouds. We're not gonna see anything. But we actually drove through the clouds, and because they have the diffused lighting all over the Big Island mm -hmm. to protect the mm -hmm. observatory from light pollution. Man, the view was stunning, wow. unbelievably Man. stunning. The, the the Milky Way was so bright and clear, and there were so many stars in the sky, and it was a perfect night. I went back recently, and I made a mistake and went back when it was a full moon, and mm. it was it was actually a super moon. It was awful. Oh, it was like the August super moon? Mm-hmm. Oh, August okay. was the moon. It was still beautiful and amazing and still like, wow, that's a planet and floating above us, but... Nothing like the first trip. Okay. And that trip, being there and seeing those stars, you got to think, that is what early man saw right. every day. Right. They were just awash in the mystery that is the sky. And they paid attention to it so oh, much. Yeah. They knew its shape. They the knew changes. about the wobble of the earth. They knew about the procession of the equinoxes. Hmm. They had it mapped out. I mean, there's so much that they had figured out that the, 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 I mean, the equinox the procession is like, what, 26,000 years? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Somehow or another, these people had figured a lot of that out a long time ago. And it may have been just total presence and that they built the model in their head with their own <sighs> DMT, if you would call it that, or endogenously, who or who knows. I'm sure they took drugs, oh, too. Here's I'm sure that was a part of it. As, it was that as well. Here's another good one. Our friend Andrew was commissioned. He's an incredible painter, and he was commissioned to paint the caves of Lascaux, a com Andrew Johnstone, a complete reconstruction of an on, like a surface that was the same rock face, but it was for like a restaurant or something. Oh, wow. And so he got all these, you know, different, you can't go in there, right, because it's, people's breath will destroy it. But he started to paint this. this is, you're going to really tune into this. He started to paint this inside this restaurant with the rock face, and he was painting the copy of it. And he would go out at night because he had to paint at night because the restaurant was in business. And he would just, you know, have his break and whatever. And he started to study the sky. And then he would go back and paint more of the bull's horns and 
the running, this and that, and he would go back. And after all this time, he started, wait a minute. I'm seeing Lascaux in the sky, but it's a little different. And he would go back and look at, he was reconstructing Lascaux from the lowest detail. And he said, this is a freaking star map. This is a star map. And he actually submitted a publication to an archaeological journal. I don't know. How was it reviewed? You know, I don't know what happened. I think it wasn't reviewed well because I don't think that it's in the literature and I'm not seeing it. Now, of course, the stars are in a slightly different position, right? The constellations Mm -hmm. were. But, you know, does it? It's freaking powerful. But isn't it one of those things where you can kind of see patterns if you want to? Like, oh, Mm -hmm. I see a Mm -hmm. bull. Mm hmm. I mean, we have, there's some patterns like the Big Dipper, like, oh, it's Big Dipper. You right. Know, but when you, when you see all the stars behind it, can you just make up your own fucking patterns? You know, right. what the Big Dipper represents to me is like an established pattern that you know exists. So you can call it the Big Dipper and say it's a dipper. But what it, what it is is just, oh, I, that's that. that there's, there they there are. There they are. Yeah, good and point. If good you, point. you know, oh, I see a bull. Well, you're, you're fucking painting a bull, dude. You know, right. of course you're seeing a bull in the sky. Right. Right, could be a good point. Plus, you're fucking sniffing paint all day. You're out of your head. Right. <laughs> going outside, you're delusional, <laughs> you're tired. Right. You know, could right. be a lot of things going on could there, which is why it wasn't reviewed very on. well. Yeah, maybe not. He blew his wig and started writing a paper on it, and everybody's like, okay, how much paint do you use? What kind of paint are you using? Right. How close are you to this paint? <laughs> then we get we run into the reductionist <laughs> mind of science. That yes, is of bo- course. It, and, and it's born to critique. Right, mm, has to, right? It has to. Well, you know, there's so much fuckery. You have to. You have to, because it's it's one of the only human enterprises that is making progress. Well, think about your friend that you forward. were talking about that was in a fucking cult that thought that aliens made the pyramids. That led him to actual science. Mm-hmm. The si- science actually set him free from the cult. It did. It did indeed. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason why it has to question everything. Why it has to go? Okay, what did you see up there in the sky? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why you're sniffing paint, pal? <laughs> that's right. You know, the cults can waste a lot of minds and a lot of yeah. lives, and that's... Charismatic leaders are very dangerous, you know, yeah. especially when they want to lead. And also, I think that the intoxicating nature of being that leader... What do you think of, you know, they talk about sociopathy and psychopathy and that that's a certain percentage of the population is lacking a brain region mm. that just doesn't have it when they put the fMRI system together. That's There's no empathic part of the brain right do you think i'm asking you on on the air here i mean this sounds like a eugenics kind of a thing but do you think a future society or future earth ought to screen people when they're young kids when they're young to find out if they're potential psychopaths and sociopaths and give them different trainings and not allow them, say, to run armies and countries and stuff like that because they're just not going to have the empathic response. Like if you had poor vision, you shouldn't pilot an airliner, for Mm. example. It's a physiological thing that makes you kind of not suited for certain kinds of jobs. I think if it can be proven that this is like there's an undeniable correlation between this particular area of the brain and lacking empathy Mm. and that you cannot be a good leader or you cannot be a good... there's so many factors like saying that someone can't be if if they lack empathy they can't be a good leader but what if those same factors mm. that led them to lack empathy also led them to lack a certain amount of ego 
hmm. that would kind of fuck up being a leader or la- they they lacked a certain amount of need to be charismatic or right. desire right. to have all these people follow you like certain high functioning autistic folks hmm. have inc- incredible skills in a lot of areas that maybe people that have extreme connections to emotions or right. to social interaction might not develop so I don't necessarily know that we understand we just don't know. all the potential possibilities when it comes to human interaction. Kind of messing with that. It's well, a, there, there's just a there's this weird range of what is a person. Right. And Good to point. say that well there's also people that have taken those psychopath tests and you know they well technically I'm supposed to be a psychopath. Meanwhile, I'm a functioning, rational, right. normal member of my community. I'm a loving father and a, and a husband mm-hmm. and um everything's great. So, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Like why does this test say I'm a psycho? Right. I don't know. I don't know so, if we, we so really have it nailed yet. Really the problem comes when we get psychopaths doing really terrible shit like dictators mm, and stuff like that. And we can't get rid of them, mm-hmm. you know, and then the damage isn't being done and we can't do any. And what, what makes them a psychopath in the first place? Like a perfect example is Saddam Hussein's children mm. who were notoriously evil. Like what, uh, Uday and Kuse, whatever right. their names were, yeah, yeah. were two of the most horrific human beings that we've ever seen come out of the, 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 the you know, the, the brood of a, a dictator. I mean, he, mm. he developed some unbelievably evil children. Right. Now, why is it that they were evil? Is it the environment? Is the it environment. nurture? Is it nature? Mm-hmm. Is it genetics? Is it epigenetics? Like, what is it that, is it just unbe- being unbelievably spoiled because you have ultimate power mm-hmm. from the time you're a child and you're essentially royalty? What is it? What causes that? And you know, it's, it's possible that our survival as a species is going to come down to how well we and healthily we manage our our children i mean yeah. ultimately if we're if we're not doing that then like, like if for instance you were building a mars colony it was going to have 250 people in it and they're going to have children or whatever you know that if you get one kind of crazy revolutionary leader that does the whole charismatic mm-hmm. thing and whatever and then there's a shooting thing it's going to shoot a hole through the dome and everyone's going to die so you can't ever afford that so you have this careful management of human psychology within that colony to make sure it's healthy and watch those processes. And to some extent, the Scandinavians did this a thousand years ago. The Scandinavians, uh, the Vikings, when they had their war parties, the leader of the war party that would go and invade East Anglia or all the way to Greenland, Labrador, and whatnot, they called these guys the berserker kings. And these guys were put in charge, and they would go, and they would do terrible shit. I mean, they would terrorize and murder and whatnot. But when they settled East Anglia, when they built York, Yorick, right, they excavated it, well, the Vikings are now settled. So they took the, the berserker king, thank you very much. You've done your job. You get the nice little grass hut at the edge of town, and you're off duty because we can't afford that now. We have to build a community. So and what would they do with him? You just retired them off. Retired them off, and how you keep them from killing people and going nutty? He just nobody would follow him. It was the rules. It was the it was the way that they did it. So when you look at how sane Scandinavia is today, maybe they got all that out of their system. <laughs> I don't know. That's a funny. That's a very funny thought. Who? <laughs> Who knows, right? Who knows? Who Who knows? knows? I think it's also, uh, there is a potential for technology to play a part in all this. 
I think that one of the things that's coming out with technology is access to information and access to mm. information, not just current information, but maybe even future, like right. the, the ability to read minds, to read thoughts, to read, look, FF, fMRI, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's been widely criticized, has been used to convict people of crimes. Mm. In India, there's a woman who was convicted of murder because she had what they dis- dis- describe as functional knowledge of a crime scene. Mm. And this has been widely discredited, and, wow. and it's very controversial. What, what happened? What did- I don't know. I don't know the whole story, but it was for a television show that I was um, um, doing for sci-fi we interviewed a neurologist or a neuroscientist, and she was describing how this, in in our country, would never work. Mm-hmm. But in these other countries, where maybe they don't have uh, as much of an either as much of an understanding, or they were able to manipulate their courts into thinking that this was far more definitive and conclusive mm-hmm. than it really is. But the point being that. This is just the tip of the iceberg, right? And if they continue to get better at this, and if this human technological symbiotic relationship takes place mm. to the point where mm-hmm. we essentially, our, our, our memories especially, right? They're pretty piss poor. Right. But if we can turn our memories into some digital archive that you can access at will, then we're going to know, I'm going to look in your head and I'm going to know what's going on. Right. I'm going to be able to tap into it. We will, we'll, we'll be connected the same way we're connected with Wi-Fi. The same way our cell phones are connected through the cellular network, there'll be some sort of a network of information exchange mm. between all people. And if that's the case, deception will be almost impossible. Right. Motivations will right. be crystal clear. And you're going to know who's full of shit. It's going to be a fucking bad day for a lot of idiots out there. Right. There's a lot of assholes right. out there that have been leading along idiots and they, they, they believe in these people, you know, whether you, it's cult members or whatever. You remember in Kubrick's film 2001, in the beginning when there's the, the pre-human, the monkeys, the and, monkeys the monolith. And, and they're sitting at dawn and they're sitting like in this kind of cliff area and they're looking at each other, right? They're looking at each other. I never forgot that scene because it's the scene before they get attacked by that other group that comes in. But they're looking at each other and they're not verbal, right? They're not communicating. They don't have like to-do lists and emails and shit going on. They're just there. And and to me, like Kubrick was trying to show that they're in a group intelligence. That just by eye gaze, they could tell who, what the state is and then they share that state. Because if somebody mm-hmm. in, in such an intense environment, I mean... If you have nefarious purposes or, you know, you're going to look away, you know, you're going to mm-hmm. have that, that whole maybe. thing. So maybe that's the way we were before we came into mind, before all this stuff came in, civilization, mind, to-do list, hierarchies, and whatnot. We were, there was no way for us, like the way we're looking now at each other, we're really connected. Maybe it's really peaks and it. valleys of perceptions. Maybe the pre-communicative apes where they didn't have verbal communication mm. or, or language or anything. Maybe they had this sort of intuitive sense of each other, and then that was all lost with email mm-hmm. and Twitter, and then it'll come back with some new technology that or, takes it to a far deeper and, level. And what I think, and this is my woo-woo theory, is that Eleusis, by packing those thousand initiates into that buried temple and subjecting them to sound and music and you know, some kind of a Sounds potion. like a rave. Yeah, it was like intense. But these people were fashioned. They were fa- they were fashioned into new beings from in that experience. 
wasn't couldn't it have been a group mind fasting couldn't it have been you know re- returning that and when we sit in medicine circles today when we do jujitsu when we do uh you know group yoga or intense things or intense ordeal things that people are seeking out now for deep mm-hmm. connection yeah. to, to remove isolation from other people meditations all these practices are this yearning to get back to where we were mm-hmm. you know uh, we didn't feel isolated from others and that we were in a group mind and that, that that's the future of evolution of our communities and we may need the shaman to come around you know in the upper paleolithic you know those communities were pretty healthful that was a pretty functional world i mean you know coming into you know the karnak and the stonehenge and the ley lines and the incredible world of even celtic europe was incredibly together there was Celtic Europe is like the European Union now. Celtic Europe had medical practices and common laws, and the Druids could come, and if there was a battle about to occur between Celtic peoples, the Druids had the power to walk down that line and decide whether the battle should happen or not. Because there was an authority. There was So the, this whole idea of the civilization of the European Union after you know, 2,000 years of Roman interstitine war, barbarian warfare, Christian, religious, and whatnot, is they've returned to the Celtic model. They've returned, in a sense, oh. the upper Paleolithic model of civilization, of of civil societies, and not beating each other in, and right. and doing and of common currency, common exchange, common health. Common. So maybe that is coming back. That is returning, and we're we're shucking off the culture that came and destroyed Eleusis. Well, I think there's definitely a feeling amongst a lot of folks that the standard model, the cubicle life, r- retirement at 65, is not just unappealing, not just unrewarding. It's, surf, but, it's serfdom, the old serfdom yeah. model. Yeah. It's slavery. It's a form of slavery that's voluntary. Mm. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're connecting to a machine. You're giving your body, literally. You're mm. giving your health. You're giving your, your spinal fluid. Your soul, your, yeah. your creative creativity you're very yeah in essence your, yeah. your body literally is like giving into your chair and your back is being compressed right. and your discs yeah. are bulging and yeah. your feet are going numb and i mean your, your body is being sucked down into this, this your, your mind's turned into a stimulus response piece yeah. of jello and i think that's what a lot of this yoga this this renaissance of uh, meditation that mm. a lot of people are experiencing especially yoga i mean yoga was never this popular when i was right. young yeah. it's incredibly popular it's now incredibly and as popular. the the rise of technological connection electronic connections with each other has also facilitated the rise of like and you crossfit know, these on, people wanting to do things that are physical physical i on friday i did a pretty long float in our we oh, have a wonderful there you go. by the way they've offered you a free float if you come up to the santa cruz mountains our friends that sounds like a long trip for a float i got one in my basement you got one in your there. <laughs> this is a beautiful flotation tank. what's the name of the company Give it's it called up. cloud nine. Oh, okay i've heard of them yeah cloud that's great nine, jay and shanti and that was Santa a fantastic Cruz amazing. property, and I went there for a float. And I tell you, you know, it's it's incredible because it's it's like doing you know a psychedelic. Yes. In that, or doing deep meditation, or doing but the flotation tank is I think better because I process all my brain shit like for the first hour or something. And this probably happens to you. It just grinds through, and it's like. I'm having these repeated thoughts of my mind or my ego is grinding through and grinding through and finally it quiets. Mm-hmm. Finally it's quiet. And I don't have stimulus on my body because I'm in a flotation tank. 
and I maybe have my head held up or whatever, and I start not knowing my body where it is, and I'm free, I'm liberated, and then I can do the deep work. And my God, I mean, the next day, this is why I was able to finish those two scientific papers, mm -hmm. because I floated and I lost all that 2,000 years of, or for me, it was months and months of being in my head. I mean, I, I, it's such a powerful tool. It's an amazing tool. And it's really bizarre to me that this was something that was kind of forgotten for a long time. Yeah. I didn't understand when I first discovered the tank. Well, I first saw it in Altered States when I was in high school. That uh, amazing movie with William Hurt yeah, where he right. turns into, he drank ayahuasca and became some freak animal, you know, mm -hmm. crazy movie. Like, crazy. it really does not hold up. Don't watch it again. Okay. <laughs> okay. Don't try to watch it in 2004. It's a piece of shit. Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. Like, people have watched it and laughed at me. Like, you fucking like this movie? I'm like, bro, I was 14, okay? It's a long time ago. But point is, um, I didn't experience it until 2002. And when I first did it, uh, there's a place in Burbank called Soothing Solutions. That was the place where I did it. The first time I did it, I, I wanted to do it forever. Oh. And I found a place that had it. Mm. And I was like, how is this not popular? Mm -hmm. And then when I started talking about it, everybody's like, wow, you're always talking about this thing. Like, you're the guy who talks about the tank. I'm like, how are you hearing about this from a goddamn comedian? <laughs> like, how is this not the, how is the president not on television saying, we need to create a more introspective, calmer society. Mm. And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to wheel out isolation tanks all over the nation. Wow. I mean, the, the, oh, wow. It would be a beautiful thing. Be a Bring beautiful them to thing. high schools, community centers, universities. This will accelerate thinking. It's, it's one it's, of the best tools wow. for personal evolution I've ever experienced. Mm -hmm. For, I do the exact same thing, as you said. For me, it's the first X amount of minutes is all just going over my own bullshit. It's, just, yeah. but it's slowly but surely. And because I do it so often, I've gotten quicker with that. Mm. It's like gotten down to like 20 minutes. But it's just, I get in there and I go, here we go. I got to go through all this stupid shit. And yeah, yeah, let's yeah. clean all this out. Yeah. But perspective enhancing, like, you know, like no matter how hectic and weird my life is, when I get into that thing and then I get out, mm. I'm like, it's all right. It's okay. Yeah, you get out fine. and you're like uh, mm -hmm. the best hippie of the 60s saying, oh, the yeah. world's beautiful. It's so important you know? for me because I'm always juggling like five different jobs. Yeah, There's always a million. I'm doing million things too many. Yeah. And you know, my back, I put my freaking back out. So I go in to float and it's like the first hour. Oh, it's just so painful. It's and like, then it slowly like slowly, separates. Yeah. Relaxes. Slowly, and it's like, I, I can just barely do this and then barely put my put my hands down. And then, then I say, wait a minute. My body can take any position, so I let my body take its own position. It moves itself around until I'm not in mm -hmm. pain anymore. Yeah. And then by Isn't the time amazing? I got out, the pain was down like 80%. Yeah, it's, it, it is an unbelievable tool, and it's just weird to me how uncommon it is. As, as Terrence says, how do they keep the lid on this they stuff? They don't. You well, know? that's the other thing that Terrence says, the man, sometimes people do the man's work for the man. Like, no one's putting, keeping the lid on isolation tanks. It's just, right. no it's, one talked about it for whatever reason. It's just, life is a bit tough. People have mortgages, you know, they yeah, have yeah. student loans. There's a lot of work that has to be done. The, the lawn has to be yeah. mowed. Yeah, you got to raise your kids. There's a lot of shit going on. It's hard. The servitude Do you? We were talking before the podcast about chairs, this weird chair that I have, this mm. saddle mm -hmm. chair. Um, do you use an ergonomic chair when you, uh, when you do your writing? You know, I 
my neighbor and I made this chair. We took this body belt chair from, there's a plug for you, from Texas that's used by surgeons, by brain surgeons. It tilts forward. It has incredible supports. Uh. And we made an extension arm that holds the keyboard above my lap. Ooh. And the mouse exactly in the right place. So just right where your arms hang. Right low. where my arms hang. And then I can roll back from the screen so I'm much farther from the screen so oh. I don't get that myopic kind of early vision vision loss. That's me. I got that chair. Yeah, yeah. God damn it. And so I've been using that chair for 20 years. But now what I'm finding, unfortunately, just even reaching for the mouse is creating repetitive strain injury for me. Even so you're going to get one of them helmets where you can move... <laughs> Move well, around your eyes. Unfortunately, I'm back like on a laptop where I don't have to do any motion. Until mm. my friend told me, he says, "You're an idiot." You, you know, I have a your friend's pod- an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> right away, you're an idiot. I'm I'm an idiot. He's an asshole. <laughs> but I have my own podcast called The Levity Zone, and I do lots of editing. You know, I know that you just go straight out, but I'm like a craftsman. I we have different musicians in each episode for The Levity Zone. LevityZone.org. Um, Say it again. Levit- so pe- LevityZone.org. LevityZone.org. And, it's it's the world needs more. We have plenty of novelty. We need more levity. Mm-hmm. L e v i t y zone. So you're in the zone when you're listening to these shows. Uh, LevityZone.org. And so I do tons of editing. And he said, "You fool! You need to get a Kensington trackball. So you're just moving your thumb, not your arm." Mm-hmm. All editors are using trackballs right. and four buttons. And I finally got religion, and I'm finally not using. Well, a mouse. Mac has a. Uh, they have like a key, pa- like this trackpad. Yeah. But it's a larger version of it. That's yep. what I use. It's amazing. I, I use love that it. to move the tracks back and forward. Oh, okay. And then I use the other hand on the Kensington to go cut, paste, cut, paste. Oh, cut, okay. Paste. You're oh, doing great. Yeah. It's totally great. Yeah. Well, you also have, probably have uh, keystrokes like pre-programmed mm-hmm. on that thing and yep. the buttons. Yep. Yeah, that yep. helps cut, a lot copy, too. Cut, copy, paste, right? mark, slide. Yeah. You know, collect the I tracks. Love, I love the trackpad. Once I switched to it on a um, on a home computer on, a, on an iMac, I would never go back to yeah. a, a yeah. mouse. Yeah. Mouse, except for gaming. But I can't game By the way, um, in the Digibarn Museum, we got a, uh, a new uh, artifact, Doug Engelbart's mouse. You know, Who's from, Doug Engelbart? He, he and Bill English created the mouse and the first online system in the ah. mid-60s. And they, Doug had something called the Mother of All Demos, which happened on December 9th, 1968. And it totally revolutionized what computing was going to be. He was like in this hall in San Francisco using a mouse and a cursor was going on the screen he was opening windows and clicking oh so it was like the first graphic user interface was 68 yep Mother is that of it all that's demos. the mouse and I don't have that one but I've got a uh, if you look up mother of all demos um, you'll see the one that came into the digibarn looks exactly like the one that Doug is using in the demo now there were several of them made so we don't know but this it has the round buttons has a great big case on it and a key set so that, see, he had, he didn't have to go to the keyboard. He had this, this cord keyboard. Look at that. Yeah, there, 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 there are. Well, I had three buttons. Meanwhile, Apple had one button. Actually, like that's. Deep into the 2000s. That's probably from my collection, but that's an Alto mouse from the 70s. Wow. If, if look at. 70s. Mo- yeah, do Doug, Ang- do Mother of All Demos, and you'll probably so, find the, uh. The, the video of it. Is it true that Xerox created the user interface and that uh, Apple copied Xerox and then ultimately Microsoft copied Apple? And it, was, was that- it was kind of passed from one to the other. So, for example, uh, uh, SRI, Stanford Research Institute, did this Doug Engelbart NLS fantastic demo and everybody watched it and go, oh, my God, and this totally changed computing. 
into a, a human thing rather than data processing and batch and you know it became no it's it's visual we're visual this is a tool for our minds it's a tool for this for is all, it right yeah here? this is yeah, it. it's an hour and a half long though so. yeah <laughs> scroll around and you can see doug you can see Doug. Oh, there he is. Oh, He's, wow. I see that thing what on the year right. Is this? See that? 1968. 68. So look at that. That looks exactly like the mouse that's at the DigiBarn right now. That's Other. remarkably similar to what a lot of people use today. And look at the keyboard. And I think Steelcase or somebody did that thing. And the key set allows you to chord key movements like uh, uh, accelerated things. Wow. And then on screen, he has clickable text. He's got a video window that a guy appears from SRI uh, transmitted live video. Look at this. Look at this. That's him? Yeah, that's one of the engineers at SRI. So he's got live video on his screen? Yeah. That's I mean, insane. What this year is, is this? This is 68. And this 68 is, he has live video on his screen. Yeah, and this is beamed in a big auditorium in San Francisco at a conference oh. and everybody in the audience is going oh my god, this is computing. This is, this is interacting with people and that's so he's insane. clicking. See the cursor? You can just sort of barely see it. He's moving wow. around. He's clicking on things. They're pulling up data. They're doing searches and That's recipe lists. And so everybody looked at this and said, oh, my God. And so Xerox Palo Alto Research Center kind of had a bunch of people from Doug's group. And then they built the first networked personal computer, the Ethernet, all that stuff in the 70s. And you're right. You know, in walks Steve Jobs and and the croup, and they kind of went, oh, my God, that's the future of computing. And they created the Lisa and the Macintosh and Bill Gates. And the company looked at the Xerox Star and Alto. And, and Gerald Simone, who was at Park, came to Microsoft and created Microsoft Word based on him creating the first word processor at Park. Wow. And then made a billion dollars, right, and everything. But, no, I mean, Xerox really did invent the future under Bob Taylor's leadership in the 70s. They just created the future, right? How did they drop the ball and go to copy machines? Well, you know, what it was a, bunch of a company full of copier heads that didn't understand <laughs> what they were looking at. And so I it, guess, it, right? walk, it walked out the door. Adobe well, came out of that. Well, how about everybody in IBM in the 19-whatever-it-was when they said, no one's going to want a, a computer in their house? A computer in their house. <laughs> Yeah. What a fuck up. I yeah, mean, that was like the biggest bad call ever. Right. I mean, there were all these predictions that. that yeah. Uh, completely ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. In retrospect. In retrospect. But how could anybody know? That's Isn't that always the point? Is that like, like we're talking about, you can't predict a 2012 or a 2045. Yeah. You're just not going to. You're not going no to. No one's going to see it. I ask. People are going to have some ideas, but the ultimately the thing itself, like no one ever thought the internet was going to be like so Facebook or right. message boards mm -hmm. or, you know, Twitter, social media interaction the way we, we experience today. It's so unbelievably bizarre, this connection that we have to each other. Mm -hmm. It's so intense. And, and, and no one saw it coming. Like, no for instance, um, just yesterday morning, I got up and holy shit, I'm going to be on Joe Rogan. I'm going to just at least post your beautiful red face logo into my Facebook page and put it on a bunch of groups. It's available on a mug. It's available on a mug. So I just put this up. <laughs> I put this up just on Facebook. I only got three or 4,000 followers, but this thing just went bing, 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 bing. And people, you know, there's probably a ton of listeners that there wouldn't have been just because of one little thing I did. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. No. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, it's one of those things too that I love the fact that someone could listen to this and go hey you know bruce damer is on this podcast you got to check this out here's a link 
and then boom, boom. and then boom, yes. and then someone retweets it, and it gets retweeted a thousand times, and sent to Facebook, and someone sends it an email, and it's it's yeah, yeah it's I mean it's I almost like we're back we're back in that little group of two thousand one apes mm-hmm. looking at each other, but what we're looking we're spending we're sending the whole of our culture and technology in each gaze. Right. It's amazing. I mean, if you could be some kind of super being and watch the mind of humanity from orbit and study it as as a a thing that's coming alive and it's moving and it's getting connected, I mean, it'd be better than any trip experience. I mean, just in truth, you know, I'm looking up at the night sky or doing the work in Origin of Life. I'm I'm looking at molecular streams and looking through microscopes on lipid chemistry. And it's like this most amazing universe of just lipids moving around on a slide and then look at the internet. This is the greatest time in the history of, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, the people talk about rare earths, you know, how rare is, are we, you know, the, the Drake equation, which shows right. solar systems that would have planets and the planets that would be in the right habitable zone and, and how to develop intelligent life. And we had just the right in, asteroid impacts to come in and spin the, the disc and say, Start again, do it again, mm-hmm. and and we we rose. I mean, what's the chance of usness being out there? How many of them are there? Well, isn't the the ultimate mind fuck the concept of infinity? Because the way I've heard it described is that if infinity exists, and they believe it does, that means the universe is so huge that everything that's ever happened on Earth in the exact same order mm-hmm. has happened an infinite number of times somewhere else. Well, I, had, I once had a um, kind of a conversation with the universe, and I, I asked it. So I, I went through a thought experiment where I went through the origin of life. You know, I just loaded my mind with everything I could do, and I went through and saw it. I, I was like, supercharged on all this stuff into my meditation and my thought experiments and I came out screaming you know I came into the division of the first protocell and while it was happening I looked around and I saw all this crazy molecular stuff going on which gave me the vision to work backwards to create the model that we're just publishing now but I felt and this is kind of heretical but I I couldn't see that it was all mechanical you know it seemed like there was something doing it. I mean, it was so complex. So in this thought experiment, I, I sat up straight and I said, I want to ask one more question. If, this, if there's something before life, there was, if there was intelligence in, that did this, can I see it? You know, this is, I think when you ask the ineffable these questions, ineffable just get pissed off with, like, questions sometimes. And the ineffable, what it did in my consciousness is, I was looking out into the, the night sky, into the darkness, and it resolved into uh, a star field. And those star fields have resolved into gas clouds and, and galaxies. And then the whole thing came rushing and just slammed into my consciousness and sort of knocked me down. And what the answer was is, you silly monkey, the universe is big enough to have agency. It grew big enough from the Big Bang. It grew along the probability streams so that this happened. That's the answer. There's one concept that I I, I can kind of understand infinity. I can kind of understand a, a lot of the, the concepts of the cosmos. But the Big Bang, just I hear it and I, it goes in one ear and it goes out the mm-hmm. other and it's just some words. Mm-hmm. It's just some shit that's typed out. It's just an idea 
that someone has that I can't conceptualize. I, it doesn't. My brain is too fucking dumb. It just doesn't well, doesn't I, process it. I I got a vision of it because it's it's hard for me too. I mean, it, the vision that I got. I was sitting there in bed asking the question, "Can I see back?" So I wanted to see back, and what came in my head were three buckets. And inside the three buckets were three blobs. And one of the blobs is super low probability of ever happening, the probability buckets. And the others are kind of like ordinary probabilities. And then there's a third bucket. Second bucket has a super low probability blob. And the third bucket has the low probability blob. And the, the intelligence that was communicating to me to teach me said, watch me. Bing, bing, bing. So when you say this, though, I'm sorry to interrupt you. So the, 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 what the intelligence showed me, because I was asking the question, getting the thought experiment back, was saying, I can trigger the lowest probability events, one after the other after the other. And I said, well, uh, okay, and said, watch me. I will rotate them towards you. So the buckets are all lined up. And you say, you see the path through the low probability events? I say, yes, I do. He says, watch this. And the path went all the way back to cosmogenesis. And I went, oh, my God. You know, this energy was pouring through, super low probability. And then the entity said, watch this. And I was pulled back, and I saw trillions of these tracers coming from, from the singularity, from the Big Bang. And the answer was, that is the power, the power to trigger the lowest probability events in all directions, and that is the power. You know, away from mundanity, please. This but you're saying that, you know, you're communicating with an entity and you're saying, you know, this thing that's communicating with you. This is more likely your imagination, no? Well, so sometimes it is imagination on steroids. Sometimes this stuff comes in. It's like your friend you were talking about. Stuff comes in. I don't know where from. You know, Einstein, for example, used to do this. Einstein would be having his coffee in, in his Swiss cafe, pondering about... Can, can light go faster? You know, is there a, a constant in the speed of light? And one night he just sort of sat down, closed his eyes, and suddenly he was in this endogenous world. And you can read about this. He called it Gedanken experiments, thought experiments. He would say, I'm going to try to understand this. But he would open himself to anything. And what came into Einstein's mind was he became like a train. He was like mounted onto a train, and there was another train coming down the track, and they each had beams, it was at night, and the light was streaming out. And he said, but how can I be the photon going toward that other photon, and the photons are going twice the speed of light relative to each other? And then he had his credible insights about, no, it's possible if you have different frames of reference. It's possible is space change. You know, the whole special and general theory of relativity came out from these thought experiments that he did that he didn't quite know where they came from. They just sort of poured into him. Then he had to interpret it into mathematics and into testable theories. So well, when, where do any ideas come from, though, really? I mean, really? Why, why consider the, the possibility they're coming from entities? Why not, why not just think this is your mind, your imagination, mm -hmm. just contemplating possibilities? And, and here's where I think, you know, this is a, a, a really big woo-woo model. Mm -hmm. you know, this is woo and woo on the front of, this, of the T-shirt here. I think that somehow our minds, when we're open and we're, we're in a state of not distraction, our boundaries are dissolved and we're in a clear state, 
that our minds are big enough computational engines to resonate with a whole lot of shit non-locally. So, for example, so you believe non-local intelligence? You think that, like, perhaps there's some sort of a universal intelligence out there that you can tune into? I th I think that, in some way, like for example, if you trace all of the neuronal pathways down all the synapses and across all the gaps backwards and forwards in your mind, and you can look this up online, the number of those tracers, those unique strings, is larger. You know, or equivalent or larger than the number of subatomic particles in the universe. You know, all countable objects in the universe. It's just huge. The combinatorials are huge because the brain's this network, and it, soon it, it ramps up. So your brain, if you, it's like an informational system, a coding system that uh, if you could activate this pathway and that little variation of that pathway and that little... It's actually bigger than the universe. And, of course, it's in the universe, too. It's not bigger than itself. But then you have the idea of non-locality, where everything talks to everything non-locally, you know, and instantly. This is Bell's theorem and all these sorts of things. And so could it be that there's some, and this is a total woo-woo hand-waving thing, could it be that your mind really fully activated, really fully present through your filters, through your training, whether you're a Roman Catholic or you're a you know, skeptical whatever, you stuff can come in that's resonating from some field, another intelligence, objects, patterns, stuff in time and history beyond what, what our little reductionist kind of mechanical thinking uh, gives us. That could we be resonating with real shit that's out there that's beyond what our training is? But it'll be filtered through our training. So all Ta you sort of tapping into some incredible ultimate potential, like some uh, ultimate something. potential for accessing information and and possibilities, for for possibilities as far as connections, possibilities as far as like putting things together in your head and 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 proposing the, the various scenarios that maybe wouldn't be available if you impose limitations on or where where you, they came from. Yeah, if you tried to figure out it with your training and your to do list and your your algorithms. You'd never get there. So you literally have to blow your mind completely open. You know, uh, 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 Graham Hancock gave a fantastic example on your show with him last month, which was a telescope, remember that, needs to sh change the shape of the lens in order for you to resolve and see stars and galaxies, mm -hmm. right? So those people who never use telescopes say, well, you shouldn't have to perturb the mind to see what's out there. Well, they've never looked through a telescope. Right. So we should, as a species, realize we need to perturb our minds. Well, I, I always have a huge problem with people that say you shouldn't perturb the mind because I don't see the negative impact of perturbing the mind, and I see a massive amount of positive, and then I mm -hmm. see these people saying you shouldn't perturb the mind, and they haven't perturbed the mind. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Like, you, Anyone who says that like psychedelic experiences are not valuable and hasn't had psychedelic experiences, I'm like... Okay, we're, we're just going around circles here. We're talking crazy. Like, you don't know whether mm -hmm. they're valuable. Mm -hmm. Like, you're just totally or guessing. Or they've never floated. Yeah. Or they've never or, done yeah. meditation. But the what I think the beauty of psychedelic experience, the, the actual taking of a psychedelic is, is that it's undeniable. Mm -hmm. I mean, mushrooms work on everybody. DMT works. Well, some people, some weird freak people, apparently don't have mm -hmm. DMT experiences. Mm -hmm. I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. The problem is it's so illegal and it's so it's so difficult to tell. I don't think Strassman had any people that didn't uh, find uh, an mm-hmm. impact mm-hmm. for the intravenous DMT studies that he did at University of uh, New Mexico. But I think that people that say it's not valuable and haven't experienced it, you're discounting just thousands, millions perhaps of people who have had incredibly mm-hmm. valuable experiences doing it and you're saying you don't need it. Like and, you know, you're course, scared. You're all, scared. All these tribal cultures yes. and that needed that use that to initiate people into humanity, into human beingness. And I think from then then your idea of endogenous access becomes mm-hmm. becomes very attractive, and it also becomes more plausible because people know that these states are, are reachable. Mm-hmm. Because I think without knowing, like I remember the first time I had any psychedelic experience, the first really big one was a 5-MeO. Oh, I had a small mushroom experience, but the 5-MeO DMT experience. Like After that, I can remember really clearly thinking, well, now that I know that this is a possibility, mm-hmm. I have to kind of rethink, rethink my spectrum. Everything. And yeah. so then one could see reaching these incredible states through uh, some sort of endogenous method that maybe perhaps you would have never even given it the chance before. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look in African communities that used Ibogaine mm-hmm. as an initiatory experience, an ordeal or initiatory experience, they're trying to take those unformed youths mm. that think they know everything, right? Yeah. And they're they're exposing them to something so massive that forces them to challenge their own internal state and and come to terms with fears or other things and broaden themselves out. They're weaving their weft as a human being. When they come out of that, they're a member of the community and they're mm-hmm. trustable. And they look each other in the eye and they have the depths. Mm-hmm. They're not children anymore, they're not juvenile anymore. And and this is perhaps what was stolen from us when we lost our initiatory rights and was taken away by priests, it was taken away by corporations or Or maybe you know, it's just a blip. I mean, maybe it's not taken away. Maybe it's just in our context of our lives. Mm. We look at a thousand years being so long. But in the universe, it's, a, it's, it's nothing. A, it's a nothing. It's a nothing. Thing. And if this state, this, uh, the, the, the life of the earth, it's a nothing. It's a nothing. So we're like, it's been taken away from us. Like, now nah, we're talking about it. It's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. It's back. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're celebrating its return. Yeah. yeah. Listen, we're out of time, but this is an amazing conversation. We could have a hundred of these, I think. We, we really could. could. We could. We could go, we could take the what if train to the end of Mars and back. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I would like to come back and bring you a bunch of artifacts yes. like that original mouse that you, yes. can, you can play with uh, on the show here. I would love that. I would love that. And uh, I, I, where could people find out more about you? Damer.com. Damer.com. D-A-M-E-R.com. And Facebook. Facebook, I'm Bruce Damer. Uh, Twitter, I'm B. Damer. Um, on YouTube, Bruce Digi, but it's all there in levityzone.org. We we rebuilt the site f- just for you, Joe, last really? week. Yeah, it's all new WordPress theme. Oh, you simpler. were worried about the impact? Yeah, we, the volume. we put it on new servers. We're going to we crash the shit out of that website right now. Let's crash it, levityzone.org. <laughs> and if anybody wants to reach me, it's easy, bruce at damer.com. You just made a huge mistake. Oh. That, that was a tremendous mistake. Prepare <laughs> for a tsunami of dicks coming your way and... Who knows what kind of photographs? Could be a disaster. Could be a disaster. Yeah, filter those out. <laughs> you might. You should, too bad it's live. It's I should have stopped you. Oh, <sighs> anyway, um, so the the podcast though is available on iTunes. Is it available? It's on iTunes. Everything. Everything and SoundCloud. And one more time, the name of the podcast: Levity Zone. 
Levityzone.org. Ladies and gentlemen. Or .com or whatever it is. Bruce Damer, ladies and gentlemen. An excellent podcast. Dennis McKenna so right about you. That was awesome. Thank you very much. Thank really you, appreciate sir. it. Thank you, Joe. Uh, a lot of podcasts this week, folks. Paul Stanley on Wednesday uh, from KISS. We're going to have a lot of fun. And, uh, and more. And more. See you soon. <laughs>